VOCM presents Open Line. The opinions expressed on this show are not necessarily those of the station. And now your host, Patty Daly. Well, all right, and good morning to you. Thank you very much for tuning into the program. It's Monday, August the 28th. This is Open Line. I'm your host, Patty Daly, and David Williams. He's produced the program. Let's get it off to a flying start that requires your participation. So, if you're in the St. John's metro region, the number to dial, 709-273-5211. Elsewhere, it's toll-free, long distance, 1-888-590-VOCM, which is 86. 26 so we've never really been known as a big basketball nation things change of course when the toronto raptors came to the country and of course back then also the vancouver grizzlies and so the raptors won the championship in 2019 and we've produced some tremendous players and including a full roster of uh, nba stars playing for the country at the fiba world championships i mean it's steve nash mvp inducted the hall of fame in 2018 James Naismith, the creator of the game, a Canadian. And don't look any further than this rank, this uh, group of Canadian basketball players at the Worlds. So we're number 15 in the world. We played number five, France, a few days ago, beat them by 30. Then we go on to play Lebanon, beat them by 55. We're going to get out of the group play, move on to the uh, qualifiers, the knockout stage. And, we, you know, some of the teams there, Spain and Brazil of the world. But Canada look really, really strong. There is an opportunity to qualify directly for the Olympics in the FIBA World Championships as well. So they look pretty strong. And just a quick hockey note. I didn't know that Ryan Klo was working for the New York Rangers. Apparently so. And moving up the rank of hockey operations. Co-senior advisor to the president and the general manager is Ryan close so that's pretty cool and let's check in on the girls under 16 baseball nationals being held in summerside pei off to a flying start it was a full rain out on saturday got back to action yesterday and newfoundland and labrador beat manitoba 10 nothing in six innings got the mercy rule out of them finished the group played four and one move on to playing the semifinals later on this morning against team quebec so we look pretty stout apparently there some pretty hefty victories on our way to facing quebec Today, good luck to the girls at the U16 Nats. All right, this is sort of a strange story. Maybe reaching for Kleenex yesterday, watching the Jays absolutely crumble and lose a second game to the Guardians. No more Kleenex? <laughs> I mean, Kleenex has become the name for regardless of the product that you buy, whoever the manufacturer is, people reach for a Kleenex. And Kleenex no longer going to be found on the shelves in Canada. Apparently, in a so-called highly competitive market, uh, Kimberly Clark Canadian said that they're going to pull Kleenex off the shelves. Such a strange thing. You would think Kleenex probably dominate the market. But now, I guess we'll lose some low-cut, low-cost uh items out there and competitors for Kleenex. No more Kleenex on the shelves. It's been a couple of things like that in the grocery stores across the country. Skippy peanut butter went away. Bugles went away. No Kleenex going away. Sounds like a strange set of affairs in the grocery store. And on that front, and I've mentioned this before, but there's federal government initiative, no real details at this moment, to try to reduce the amount of plastic that we find in the supermarkets. I mean, if you just pay attention when you go to the store, of course, we're all very focused on price, and naturally so, but the amount of plastic that we see coming from the grocery stores is madness. So they're going to look for, whether it be glass jars or bring your own bags. I mean, things that people have gotten used to now with bringing your own shopping bag after they did away with the so-called single-use plastic bag at the grocery store. But Canadians throw away about 4.4 million tons of plastic waste every single year. About 9% of it is actually recycled. Food packaging accounts for one-third of all plastic packaging used in Canada. So, and you know, it's not just about whether or not you're environmentally conscious. Plastic is ending up in our food chain. 
So there is absolutely a need for the grocery stores to lead the charger, the big retailers, some of the smaller operations and the mom and pop type grocery stores and uh, convenience stores and the like, we're not going to be targeted with this one, but the numbers regarding plastic waste in the country is absolute madness. There is absolutely no need for a cucumber to have a individually plastic wrapped option. Okay. So the Tickle Swim, big success over the weekend. They raised about $42,000 for the Canadian Mental Health Association. So congrats to all involved in the 11th annual Tickle Swim. 5Ks, of course, from the Cove over across to Belle Island. And I bring it up and good on everyone who participated and the organizers. And yes, the money raised goes a long way. But this conversation, I think, is going to get some traction. And even the minister responsible for health community services, Tom Osborne, saying that the province is having a look at what people refer to as involuntary addiction treatment. When there was a rally last week at Confederation Building, they used this phrase, compassionate involuntary care. There is very little out there to point to any such circumstance where it works. There's lots of research out there that shows it could be detrimental and lead to higher death rates. So it's worthy of a conversation. I know people's heart is probably in the right place. But it has advanced from the rally to some stuff that's going on that I think is very problematic. Posting names and pictures on social media of folks who are either A, in the sex trade, or B, dealing with a mental health concern and or an addiction. And you know, being told to please go help this person. It's probably not gonna help them at all. It's probably gonna hurt them. And those type of posts, even if people are trying to do what they think is the right thing and trying to help, trying to help the issues that we see so prevalent in so many parts of the province and across the country, this is a really bad idea. It's a really terrible idea because for folks who are trying to help in some form, we're actually demonizing folks. So, you know, there's a lack of services. We get it. There's a problem that continues to grow, understood, whether it be with mental illness and or absolutely drug addiction. But if you don't ask and want help, you're not going to be helped by being forced into it. Imagine the whole concept. Going to a judge to petition for the arrest of someone who hasn't necessarily committed a crime and then forcing them into some sort of treatment program. They're looking at it very carefully, and you have to believe it's coming to pass in the province of Alberta. It's been used in different parts of the United States for decades, and it simply doesn't work. So while folks who are generally concerned and maybe have had addictions impact their family directly, maybe have lost loved ones due to the scourge of these incredibly illicit, dangerous, toxic drugs, posting the pictures of folks who are in the community and saying, please go, if you see this person, go help them. I don't even know what that means. So what's an individual going to do when they recognize the picture of someone that was posted on a Facebook page or what have you, and you see them and then what? So, yes, there are huge gaps in the system, and people are suffering. But I don't think that's any answer to it. But if you want to take that on, we can do it. And sometimes, in, for instance, in that type of scenario, we're just sort of shuffling people around. And we'll get to housing here now in a second. But this is a, a story I think that is indicative of simply just moving people around from one area to another, thinking that we're helping, thinking that we're reducing some of the issues that is facing their communities. And this story comes from Carmenville. So leading into the summer, to the peak of the tourist season, with so many people who needed emergency shelter were staying in hotel rooms in Gander. And to free up the hotel rooms for the visitors, they shipped them out. And there's an emergency shelter out in Carmenville. The problem here is that the community and the shelter itself is simply not equipped to actually support these people. 
You can offer them clothing. You can put a roof over their head, maybe some food in their belly. But when they have complex needs, simply shuffling them from a hotel room in Gander to a so-called emergency shelter, which was a former senior's home in Carmelville, has posed significant concerns for people in the community. There are some interviews of some of the residents, and they say, this is not about not in my backyard. It's not the NIMBY issue. It's just the cut and dry that a, a former senior's home that has been now turned into an emergency shelter without the health care professionals, counselors, addiction services, mental health professionals, all we did was move people in need of support from one community to another without the required tracing them and following them with whatever supports they need. So if you're in Carmenville, look, I get it. Sometimes this very clearly comes across as, well, it should be some other community's problem. But it really sounds like this is more an issue of whether or not there's actually some professional supports. Again, a roof over your head, clothes on your back, food in your belly is not the full suite of services needed by many folks who find themselves in need of an emergency shelter. So that's just, I think, a real clear-cut example of it would be an issue, Maybe some people would call it a problem, but well, what we're talking about is humans who actually need some help. So if you move them from here to there, the folks that now don't see them in their community, now don't have that issue, whatever it is, and it manifests itself in many ways, whether it be with crime or what have you, folks are legitimately concerned. So whether that be Livingstone Street in St. John's or now the growing issue out in the community of Carmenville, it's very real. So simply shuffling the deck chairs is not the answer at all. And in the world of housing, you have to believe that housing is a good place to start when we're talking about the actual supports. Because housing, once again, is simply not an edifice. It's not just a building. It comes with all of the other issues regarding your health, prosperity, your safety, your dignity, and yes, what that means for the rest of the community where you live. Interestingly, had the Federal Minister of Housing, Sean Fraser, on last week, and I do continue to find it a real head-scratcher when we're talking about what the impact of immigration would be on housing, there's some sort of consideration being given by the federal government to a cap on international students. Let's dig into it a bit. So Canada has long been the home and a real attractive place for international students to move to, to go to university, potentially stay. And if we're talking about gaps in the labor market and the need for advanced degrees like engineers and doctors and every other healthcare professional, mathematicians and scientists and up and down the line, international students seems like the most bizarre place to start. So the numbers have grown exponentially. Back in 2011, there was about 240,000 international students in the country. In 2014, there was a newly launched plan called the International Education Strategy Plan. So what we went from was simply a way to deal with global relations as part of our foreign affairs agenda, now to the economic driver that is international students. Last year, the country welcomed 800,000 international students. That's a massive big number. And when we talk about the problems and the complexities of housing, for starters, there doesn't seem to be any real cohesive plan between whether it be the federal government and either party at the federal level and or the provinces and municipalities. People use the words that give it that sense of urgency, right? Treat it like a wartime crisis. And in essence, it absolutely is a wartime crisis. So, but international students, what a bizarre place to start. Let's talk about some of the impact. Now, for starters, if they stay with their advanced degree and the contributions they can offer, that'd be incredible. So, 800,000 last year. Back in 2018, there were 721,205 international students. The estimates coming from the federal government, and this is before we really talked about it in this tone of it being an issue, 
$21.6 billion contribution to Canada's GDP in 2018. That's more than the export of auto parts, lumber, or aircraft. That's really pretty staggering numbers when you talk about it and think about it from outside looking in. When the housing issue, which is right here in front of us, and everyone will think that there's one contribution, one factor or another that's driving the, the issue of regarding the numbers of people unable to afford, whether it be rent or to get into their first time home. But international students, if you want to take it on, what I don't get here is, you know, universities, institutions of higher learning, critically important, a well-educated public, we all know the, the issues surrounding education, but there really is a sense that universities have gone from places to learn, advanced degrees and otherwise, thirst for knowledge, to as much more a business now than it ever was before. And that has not satisfied the needs of the general public. Public funding to post-secondary institutions is way down across the country. We know the implications here with the $65 million-ish that is not going to be flowing from the province to Memorial University, what that's meant for affordability issues, tuition, for example, which has doubled. So we've kind of gone from learning to much more the sense of the field that it's a business. And yes, of course, you have to operate inside the parameters of how much money comes in the door versus how much money needs to be spent, whether it be on the maintenance deficit, the infrastructure deficit, and everything else under the sun that comes with running a university. But that's really quite something. Let's talk about it. All right, I hear and see some of the advocates in the daycare world reacting to the update we got from the province last week. So the minister responsible, Crystal Lynn Howell, of course, the new minister of education, saying that since January 1, approximately 820 child care spaces have been created, operating at $10 a day, 8,300 spaces in the province. The federal government's commitment of the $347 million to move towards $10 a day, they break down the numbers a little further, and I'm glad they pay as close attention as they do because as much as we try to follow along, they've got their finger on the pulse. They're following along with the issue of re regulated and unregulated spaces in the province. So what we need to look at is a couple of things. Number one, the province really does need to come up with a demand number so that we can track whether or not we're heading in the right direction. We're actually doing what needs to be done for access and affordability. So if we talk about 820 additional spaces, what that number did not also reflect is how many spaces have been lost. So one of the advocates that's speaking out on this uh, issue is uh, Yolande Potty-Sherman. Welcome Yolande's call if she has time this morning. Only 258 more kids in 2023 have access to regulated childcare spaces than they did in 2021. So the 820 is misleading. If the net gain is 258, then that snail's pace stuff. When you look at the so-called daycare deserts across the, uh, across the province, some 14% of daycare required the young people who need early childhood education and daycare, we only have regulated space to accommodate 14%. So big thanks to those advocates who break down the numbers a little further, fill in some of the gaps that don't quite paint the rosy picture the province was displaying last week. 820 in reality is 258 because daycare spaces have also dried up while some of the others have tried to open and yes an additional 100 childhood early childhood educators is good but does that satisfy the need of you have to imagine that there's thousands upon thousands of families who have been on wait list for who knows however long to try to get a space for their child but you want to take it on let's go 
All right. Uh, very quickly. So looks like good news. One of the storms that was being watched is Hurricane Franklin. Looks like it's going to track away from the province. Not going to hit land. Maybe some minor impact or minimal impact in Grand Bank or on the Grand Banks, but still some significant rain coming. On that front, you know, we still hear stories from the southwest coast, Port of Basque, and other communities about the impact of post-tropical storm Fiona. Are we going to see a full accounting of every single dollar that was supposed to flow to help people recover. So whether it be government money, individuals, businesses, charities, there was millions and millions and millions of dollars, rightfully so, donated and headed towards trying to help people on that part of the province. But I still think, you know, myself, I made a donation, I'm sure, Dave, did many of you listening this morning, because we saw the incredibly difficult and dangerous pictures and videos that came on that brutal weekend. But where'd the money go? Has it all been spent the way it's supposed to be spent? There was matching dollars, and of course, lots of great community groups and charities and not-for-profits. They dug in and did the right thing. But I still think in an effort to make sure we're on the right track, a full accounting of that money would be helpful. All right, I'm going to pepper the week with a couple of shout-outs to the winding up of the summer minor and amateur sports season. Lots of people sent me the results. I'll try to scatter them throughout the day and throughout the week. First off, this morning, congratulations, CBS U15A Provincial Baseball Champions. Congratulations to all hands there. And if you want to send me along some good news and maybe a sports-related shout-out for your child's team, victors or otherwise, we can do it. All right, we're on Twitter. We're VOSM Open Line. Follow us there. Our email address is openlinefosm.com. When we come back, let's get off to a great start that requires your participation. As I said earlier, Jocelyn's in the queue to kick us off with road conditions. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Let's begin on the top of the board, line number one. Good morning, Jocelyn. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty Daly. How are you this morning? I'm doing very well, thanks. How about you? Oh, I'm doing wonderful. I want to start off first this morning by first extending a huge thank you to the baseball organization in Cornerbrook for hosting the uh, under-11 provincial tournament this weekend. Uh, They did a fantastic job. The young man that runs the organization in Cornerbrook is truly an inspiration to the young people in that community doing volunteer work. They went above and beyond. But I have a couple of really serious issues with the Newfoundland Baseball Association that I want to bring to your attention. Sure, go ahead. Now, did the, the, the St. John's Caps win that tournament? Yes, they did, and they played a fantastic game. And congratulations to not only the players, but the parents of St. John's as well. I mean, we're neighbors, so, you know, I'm with Mount Pearl, but they're with St. John's. But, um, Patty, I've been driving now for, six, for almost 50 years. I'm 67 years old. I have driven so far across Canada. I have driven through 38 states in the United States. I have never, we have never, I'll clarify myself, I'm, my husband, have never, ever driven in road conditions like we experienced yesterday on our highways in Newfoundland and Labrador. And let me clarify what I mean by that. Um, the traffic yesterday, from the time we left Cornbrook till we turned off the Wickless Bay line, was absolutely mind-blowing. I had driven across this island. I lived on the West Coast uh, in the 80s. I've driven across this island many, many times by myself. 
And I can guarantee you there's not one person in the Department of Highways can tell me that our roads are standard in Newfoundland. And what I mean by standard is the ruts in the road where all the rain gathers. We've driven to Mexico three times, once from Newfoundland, twice from Yukon. We have never, ever driven on a road with rot in it like we see in Newfoundland. And I'm willing to bet, especially on our newer highways like the Veterans Memorial Highway, if those highways were tested, I am willing to bet a dollar to donuts. They are not standard highways. So yesterday morning, uh, we had an unfortunate weather situation in Cornerbrook. We had a tropical storm forecasted. We knew it was forecasted. We had heavy rains the night before. We were supposed to play at 9 a.m. The decision was made to postpone the game till 12, even though we knew bad weather was coming. Cornerbrook Baseball Association should have the ability to use their own discretion in making a decision on whether or not to play a baseball game and put the safety of of little children and their parents and their families at risk. Because Cornerbrook should have been able to tell St. John's and Mount Pearl, you can postpone the game and play it in one of your cities the week when the weather improves. Because driving on our highways in Newfoundland is not like driving on normal highways. You have a lot of inexperienced drivers that when they get in in these extreme rainy conditions, they get in these situations, and the first thing they do is put their brakes on. And that's the worst thing you could do. Just so I understand, one second, Jocelyn. Are you talking about safety as it pertains to returning back to the communities that you came from to drive home? Okay. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. And, and from listening to your uh, opening this morning, uh, there was a lot of activity. There was a lot of baseball and fastball activity pertaining to our children on the go. This was the last weekend before the long weekend in summer. So they're trying to fit in all the tournaments. And it was unfortunate what happened here because Cornerbrook was not supposed to even host the tournament. But thank God they stepped up to the plate and did an amazing job because Gander couldn't accommodate the teams because of come from away. But if this baseball association had done their planning early enough, they should have known and anticipated this problem with the hotels. And then a, a decision could have been made to possibly change. Or either that, they should have enough fields backed up if one field floods, there had to be more fields around that we could have played that game on earlier. We were, we never, the game never started. It was supposed to start at 12, but they started at about 11.30. Thank God it was a half hour early. But Patty Daly, the road conditions yesterday, and even my husband said, he has never seen so much traffic on our roadways in Newfoundland as we experienced. It was like unbelievable. I don't know where everyone, but obviously people had to travel or they wouldn't be out driving in extreme conditions like that. So they were like us probably and had to get home. Parents had to get back to work. Kids are back in, you know, hockey camps and baseball camps and people, and we couldn't get another hotel room. There was nine people stayed at the Quality Inn, and if we had to, if the teams had to stay an extra night, there was only three rooms available. Every hotel room was booked up in Cornerbrook. We couldn't even get a hotel room in Cornerbrook the weekend. 
So, and, Jocelyn, who was in the final? St. John's Mount Pearl? St. John's Mount Pearl, yeah. Okay. Yeah. And another thing that I, I, I have to question about this baseball association is uh, why, why young girls, why is not a law or a requirement for teams to have so many little girls on their team? We had two little girls on our team the weekend. Most teams didn't have any. Now, if we want little girls to feel included, we have to include them and not exclude them. When I played ball for 40 years, I had my own mixed team. Whenever we were on the field, we had to have at least three females on that, on that field at all times. And in order for our little girls to feel the confidence in their ability to play, they should have to play. They shouldn't have to, but it should be their decision. But why some of the teams didn't have females and some had, I have no idea. Well, some leagues are actually mixed leagues. So yes. you're suggesting that the, the baseball NL should have a requirement for X number of girls to be on the so-called boys team? Not the boys team. It's supposed to be a mixed team. It's not an exclusive boys team. No. It's an association for young children, young boys and girls. But this is specifically, this was a boys' division tournament, right? Not a mixed league no. tournament? No, 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 no. No, not, not to my knowledge, no. It's not an exclusive boys' tournament, no. Well, I mean, and the way it works, generally. I can't be corrected on that because I don't live here, so I don't really know all the rules and regulations now like I used to. But I'm just making a statement that I think that girls should be playing as well as boys. Well, uh, they're absolutely allowed to play. The issue is not whether or not uh, they're allowed because they are. Yeah. But, I mean, girls' baseball is, is actually growing. It's pretty good. I mean, we I just talked about the under-16s out of PEI playing in the Nationals. We're 4-1. So there's our, there are girl divisions and there's boys' divisions. Yeah. That doesn't mean that the girls can't play with the boys because oftentimes they, abs- they absolutely do. And that's right across this, the world of minor sports. I've seen girls playing on what people refer to as the boys' team in soccer. Certainly in hockey it happens. Oh, uh, absolutely. Yeah. Anyway, I'm glad everyone made it home safe, even though there might have been an option to play the championship game in St. John's and Mount Pearl upon safe arrival to avoid what would have been, I guess, tricky driving conditions. Well, I'm telling you, if something okay. had to happen yesterday to one of those families, uh, the Baseball Association would feel pretty terrible this morning, wouldn't they? Uh, because there's no reason why the game could not have been postponed and played somewhere else in considering the fact of the extreme weather conditions and this time of year it is hurricane season and tropical storm season we know that we knew there was a system coming through so we should be able to make we should be able to stand on our feet and make quick decisions like corner books should have been able to say to st john's and mount pearl we have no problem with you playing your game if if that's if it's better for you that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I guess when it comes to provincial tournaments, then right across the gamut of minor and amateur sports, the provincial body would be uh, involved intimately, if not directly or solely, with decisions like that. Not to say that they maybe did not take everything into consideration to do what you think is the right thing yesterday, but I'm glad you made it back safe, and I appreciate the time, Jocelyn. Thanks for this. 
Thank you, Patty, and have a wonderful day. You too. Take care. Okay, bye-bye. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, like last week we had a call from a resident of Stephenville, fellow who says he's been in business in the community for 38 years, and some information coming from council regarding the Diamond Group of Companies and the Stephenville Airport. It looks like a lot of what was initially proposed is off the table. We'll get clarification, information, and update coming from the mayor of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose right after this. Start your day off right. Get the latest updates on news, traffic, and weather conditions, plus interviews with today's newsmakers, your go-to source before you get on the go. 5.30 to 9 a.m. weekdays, your VOCM mornings. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number seven. Good morning to the mayor of Stephenville. That's Tom Rose. Mayor Rose, you're on the air. Hey, Mr. Patty Daly. Thanks for having me on. Happy to have you on the show. We had a very interesting conversation with one of your residents last week about what the future of the Stephenville Airport and the relationship with the Diamond Group uh, includes. He said a bunch of stuff. He said... uh, just about everything of importance was off the table. The manufacturing of the cargo drones, off the table. The requirements to continue to operate it as an airport, off the table. Uh, runway lighting, off the table. Our, let's start with the manufacturing of cargo drones. What's the status of that proposal yeah, coming so from the Diamond? Actually, uh, actually, I had a chance, uh, Patty, to listen to uh, Mr. Hickey's rant. Uh, and first of all, I want to say that 99.9 of what percent of what he said was actually incorrect and uh, I'm not sure where he got his information but I sit on the board of directors uh, with SAC as an ex-officio and there's two legal teams on both sides of the equation the full terms of the agreement are set and confirmed and uh, it's moving forward it's a big day for Stephenville I believe on Friday at 4:58 p.m. it officially transferred and the news release went out this morning but as far as I'm I'm concerned, and I know from the Carl Diamond group of companies, his initial plan to look at building drones in Stephenville is still on the table. So I'm not sure where we even got that from. So he also said that there would be no requirement to operate it as an airport because the thought was that not only operate it as an airport, but whatever efforts required to bring some more air activity to the Stephenville airport. So uh, speak to that issue that uh, the the gentleman brought forward, Mr. Hickey. Yeah, well, you know... uh, I I come from an aviation background, Patty. I'm a former air traffic controller, uh, worked at the airport in the 90s for 10 years. So I got about 15 years uh, experience in aviation. And what he's saying is 100% inaccurate and not true. Uh, In the terms of the sale, the airport will continue to operate as a commercial airport under Transport Canada's standards. And uh, as we're moving forward, we started a major lighting project, which is about a $3 million project, one $1.7 million was paid by the federal government. Now, in the terms, Carl Diamond has to continue with the completion uh, to come in at $1.3 million. And actually, in the terms of the sale, actually, he's actually already having paid the GST on the first $1.7. So everything is in play. They're uh, painting the lines to meet requirements. But this airport is getting busy now. It's going to get busier in the future with everything that Carl Diamond has planned, but also in concert with what's happening with World Energy. we got a $12 billion investment coming here uh, with a work camp of about 2,000 people, and the demand for commercial service is actually reinstated from my perspective so this has been going on for quite a long time there's been some snags and hiccups and stalls throughout the process 
So where exactly are we then? So if the plan is continuing to build the cargo drones and the plan is to increase air activity at the airport and the runway lighting and I guess the fire hall and all that type of stuff, we're talking about huge investments. So what actually has been done? You said 458 last week, there was a formal transfer. I assume that means that the deal for the sale of the airport proper has been concluded. Absolutely, yeah. And, it's, you know, Scotty is no different uh, a sale of a house. It's concluded on Friday. Press release is out today. And it's like if you bought a house, it's still going to take you a few days to move the furniture in. It takes a little bit of time. So Carl Diamond has his team and his business plan and his ideas for the airport. But just think of where we were a couple of years ago, Patty. We were an airport that was in bankruptcy protection. Carl Diamond paid off all the creditors in part of the terms. We were an airport that was in debt of a million dollars in a line of credit that the province and you and me as taxpayers were on the hook for. Carl Diamond paid off that million dollars in the terms of the agreement. Uh, The board was looking at possibly closing the airport and laying off the employees. All the employees have signed a a contract to go to work with Carl Diamond, and they're all getting a $10 an hour raise. You know, so, like, there's so much good about this. And when somebody like Sean Hickey comes on board and and rants, and he's a guy with a bit of sour grapes, tried to run for council, never got elected, not electable, and, uh, you know, spreading all these false rumors, it only hurts his own town that he lives in. It only hurts uh, the business people in the community, and it it has no merit to it. You know, he has no merit. Everything he said, even like saying, I have three barns on my farm. Yes, I do. My father built one in 1974. Since I've been here, I've built two barns, have all my permits from the town. I built the farmhouse that I live in off-grid, got a permit from the town. Uh, I paid for my electricity to come up here. Like, that's none of Sean Hickey's business. Yeah, and I mean, the, the personal scraps are, yeah. uh, I guess they're, they're exactly that, and they can be had in Stephenville proper. So, with the contract, what sort of requirement, contractual obligations, do the Diamond Group of companies have with the transfer and the purchase of the airport, even if they paid off the creditors, even if they paid off that million-dollar uh, outstanding loan? What commitment do they have to display here now about time frames and the level of investment over, say, the next 12, 24 months, what have you? Because it's one thing to conclude the sale, quite another to see the actual very lofty uh, promises that Mr. Diamond has made. Yeah, well, uh, initially, in some of the findings and the work of the transfer, uh, local management has identified just initially he's got to put an additional $5 million in to complete runway, buy new equipment, uh, get the lines painted, uh, do a bunch of things just to get the airport ready. Now, like I said earlier, the airport's getting busy now. We have more GA activity, more helicopter activity. There's going to be a couple of days where it's got to transfer the operating certificate uh, from the airport authority to Transport Canada. And there's a couple of days lag that that's going to happen, but that's just process and procedure on uh, on Transport Canada's perspective, and they are working very closely with the management team. But uh, his his fulfillment is to run the airport as an airport, and to build hangars, and to build a new terminal, and to look at aerospace and drones, and and also. What has happened here is the airport has become much more valuable in the last two years. And so right now, 
the World Energy has actually pre-leased 180 acres of land for laydown area for the planned development of a $12 billion hydrogen and wind farm expansion. So, you know, there's a lot of opportunity here. Uh, I'm sure the airlines uh, are looking at Stephen Bill very closely. I anticipate uh, airlines will actually reinstate service to Stephen Bill, and Stephen Bill's got a great future, Patty, and this is a big day, and I'm just very uh, proud that this day has happened, and I wish the very best of Carl Diamond, his management team, his investors, and to achieve because uh, we were in a bad place two years ago when Carl Diamond stepped into the airport and talked to the board of directors. Given the timelines, given the promises made, there's obvious skepticism out there. So where in the contract is protection for the airport authority itself and for the town that if and when some of the things promised do not come to pass that the airport is transferred back to the town of Stephenville? Well, you know, that's a good question. Uh, when we look at the airport, people said, oh, Carl, I'm got the airport and all this. Well, at the end of the day, nobody's picking up the airport and moving it away. It's not a motorhome. It's not a, an 18-wheeler. Nobody's driving it away. That airport's going to exist. It's been operating for about 70 years now. The future's never looked brighter. Uh, for Stephenville because of the investment of Diamond and what's happening with the green energy sector file here in the province, in particular the Stephenville port of pass region. So uh, his commitment is to run the airport. And remember, the airport to the town of Stephenville was a liability. It was costing us about four or $500,000 a year to keep the lights on, to keep the payroll going. We were getting no tax revenue. So now that Carl Diamond has uh, paid off the, the taxes, the water and sewer up until uh, the closing date. Now we got a new tax regime that we're going to start getting taxes from Carl Diamond. We don't have to put it like we're going to be like three quarters of a million ahead. We only got a $10 million budget. And this is great news from a fiscal perspective uh, and a financial perspective of the town. We're going to be able to, you know, pave more roads, do more recreation, uh, take care of our infrastructure. Even if the airport was a liability, it's also, regardless of how you cut it, it's also a potential asset, and an asset that's growing in value, as you've already described. What was the price tag for the airport? The numbers being floated around are $6.90. Well, here's what's interesting, and they keep saying that. We even had one of our board members keep bringing it up. Oh, you gave it away for $6.56. Well, that's not right. He actually had to pay $2 million for the airport, but... The fi- after we paid all the debt, remember, it's a nonprofit, non-share airport authority that could not receive uh, value or funds as a board member. They're volunteers. So after they set the terms of the contract, it was, you pay off all the debt, you pay off all the legal, you pay off all the uh, creditors that weren't paid 17 years ago. Uh, you do all of these things, and the closing price will be $6.56. So... He never paid $6. He paid, say, $2 million and $6.75. And, of course, the government has said all that line of credit, once that, if that's gone away, will not be coming back. I mean, certainly the, the optimism coming from you is vastly different than I would suggest most people. Now, I'm not in the room. I've never been to a meeting that any of these contractual issues have been discussed or finalized. Uh, anything else you'd like to offer this morning before we say goodbye? 
No, Patty, uh, but thanks for bringing me on. You know, uh, uh, everybody has the right of opinion, and uh, when people come on, uh, I'm glad I had the opportunity to come back to uh, actually uh, counter the commentary from Mr. Hickey because everything you said was wrong, and uh, it's unfortunate that he took that stance. But uh, this is a good day for Stephen Bowl. It's a great day for the employees. Let me tell you. You know, when I when I was the other day, I was thinking when this was coming, it was imminent. It was coming close to a deal. I was thinking, you know. Those poor employees, we never knew from one uh, um, vote of council whether we were going to be able to get five votes to give a grant to keep their payroll going. But now here they are with a future, with a $10 an hour raise, uh, hopes for the airport, and uh, we couldn't ask for more. I appreciate the time this morning, Mayor Rose. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Pat. Take care. Bye-bye. As the Mayor, Tom Rose. Let's take a break. When we come back, social determinants of health. We'll talk about the RCMP and their commitment to have a continued presence on Fogo. And then whatever you want to talk about, don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Uh, let's go to line number six. Good morning to the Mayor of Fogo. President Andrew Shea. Mayor Shea, you're on the air. Good morning, Penny. Thank you for taking my call. Happy to do it, sir. What's the update? The update is all officers are remaining on Fogo Island, all three. We got uh, the, the decision has been reversed, and there's going to be no change in the status of the police force on Fogo Island. So, just help me understand this: Is it three permanent uh, RCMP officers living on and working out of the detachment in Fogo? Yes. Okay. Uh, it seems like uh, there may be a mix-up in the uh, in the uh, statement that the RCMP sent out to the news. Uh, to be published, right? Because I sent you one this morning. Did you read it? I have read it. I did find some of it a bit confusing. That's why I asked the very fundamental question because yep. there was a thought that there'd be one RCMP officer, but then if there's a serious issue, they have to wait for a second officer to come from Gander and all that kind of stuff. So I was a little bit confused as to exactly what the proposal was and what the outcome is now. Okay. So we had a meeting with the uh, with the people from Gander, uh, Superintendent uh, McKinnon, District Commander Larry uh, Larry Turner and Inspector Otzinger. And uh, we went over this, and they had a statement already done up which which talked about the officer that was being transferred. And it said that the officer being transferred was going to be replaced and still living on Fogo Island, right? Yep. And we, we thought that that didn't clarify the situation for us. That wasn't enough for us because one officer can't do anything. But if you look down under, uh, right on the next one, it says, this is in addition to the two police officers already stationed there. So the two officers that are there are staying, plus this one is being replaced and living on Fogo Island, too. So it's been gone back to the original deal. Now, we know the RCMP, there's a lot of vacancies uh, in this province, the, the highest number of vacancies per capita of any province in the country. So recruitment has been an issue. What happens, I think it's uh, as of September 23 that the, one of the three officers will be leaving and or retiring, whatever's happening to that officer. So what's the pledge? Who covers if indeed that vacancy can't be filled sooner than later? Well, it says in, the, it says in it that it will be... Uh Unit, a replacement officer is secured. The position will be filled full-time by relief officers who will be based on Fogo Island. So that position is going to be filled by part-time officers from somewhere else who will fill it, and they will live on Fogo Island until a full-time one is arranged. And, of course, your obligation is to your community. But with all the vacancies, 
in the RCMP and even the RNC expanding their footprint to cover some areas that were once covered by the RCMP, you wonder what the ripple effect of that will be elsewhere. Do you have any understanding of what that means for RCMP operations elsewhere? And I know your concern is Fogo, and rightfully so, but obviously if there's a vacancy problem, using relief officers from elsewhere is going to further complicate policing in other parts of the province. Yeah, well, I, I don't know how it complicates anything anywhere else, but the thing is, uh, this is the statement that they have out, right? This is this is what they're doing. This is what they told us. This is what we agreed on. So that part of it is solved. What they're doing to fill it, I don't know how or where they're getting the officers from. It's and what type of commitment is this for? Is this for the for 2024, or does this have a time frame attached to it? No, no time frame attached. It's just that they're replacing the officers and they're keeping them on there because. I, I think, Patty, after, you know, like uh, I must say the RCMP that from Gander were, were, were pretty professional in dealing with us, you know, but I, I think it finally got through to them that, you know, like you can't police Fogo Island with a helicopter or, you know, getting back and forth. It, it probably will take more time than it is by staffing it. You know, it's just it's just such a bother, I think, to them and everything. So I think they've agreed on it. It's, 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 a, it's a deal. We're quite pleased. We're very happy on Fogo Island that our RCMP is going to be you know, stationed here and living here full time, and that's what our objective was. We know the crime rates are thankfully pretty low in your community. If I remember correctly, your concerns, we were talking about things like speeding and drunk driving and the potential for other crimes to take place when people know there's no police handy, so this is my opportunity. When we last spoke, I think we also talked about vaguely what Plan B would have included. So can you help fill in that blank? Because I think there's going to be a concern for many municipalities that think that there's going to be a reduced police presence and maybe things like speeding and drunk driving and distracted driving, like, for instance, down in Portugal Cove, St. Phillips, or in Mount Pearl. They're backfilling that with municipal bylaw officers. What was your plan B? Well, we, we didn't have anyone yet. We, we, we thought we'd go, you know, maybe go with the RNC, that type of thing, you know. Because okay. We can't afford to, uh, to, to you know, put, put police officers here. We can't afford to hire people. But the thing is, uh, we, this was our only objective right now was to... We believe we had a good case, and we believe we could win it, so we went went that route, and thank God it's come true. And we had a lot of support. We had a lot of support from the government, provincial government, some of the federal members. Uh, we've, we've been dealing with everyone. This has been a pretty uh, heavy campaign. We had a lot of support from Pogawan. The, the, the rally went well. We had uh, just about 1,400 names on the on petition, and everybody was backing it, you know, and... Uh, uh, I, I think they just realized that, you know, it's just better. To, it's, it's probably more convenient for the police and better for the police stations all around if it's all gone with done this way. I appreciate the update this morning, Mayor Shea. Anything else you want to say? No, it's just, uh, and I thank the VOCM for giving us the time to get the news out there because, uh, you know, it's great. A lot of people listen to you, and uh, we just want to make it clear that the three officers are remaining on Fogo Island permanent and they're living on Fogo Island and that was our objective and we're so pleased with the RCMP and I say there's a lot of people to be thanked so thank everyone who helped us in this thing so we'll move on to other more important things now this is done deal thanks for this morning Mayor Shea Okay. Take bye. care. All right. Bye-bye. So, Fogo Mayor Andrew Shea. Yeah, good for the, his community, of course, and I'm sure the residents are quite pleased. But that whole conversation about, you know, what, how that complicates RCMP presence elsewhere and the expansion of the RNC to different parts of uh, western Newfoundland, there's a lot to that policing issue. And just read on the front page of the Telegram over the weekend about the new crime rate numbers. There's issues to be broached. Uh, where do you want me to, to go? Eight? Okay. Let's go to line number eight. Good morning, Murray. You're on the air. 
Good day, Patty. How you doing? Doing very well. How about you? Uh, I just wanted to call in. I'm a first-time caller, and I just wanted to call in this morning when that lady called you a couple back there. Uh, said about the road conditions coming from Cornerbrook. So I drove through the same thing yesterday, towing a trailer behind me. And uh, there's been a couple of times there I thought I was on, out in the ditch. Uh, I don't understand how our roads can be in such poor condition that they're putting a lot of money into it. But uh, it seems like they're doing it all wrong because two or three years after they do it, you got rucks in the road again. That's a problem. So where was the stretch of highway where you ran into trouble? Uh, from Cornerbrook to Birchie Lake. Okay. Yeah, the, the thought and the concept about money, and I always go back to a, a media lock-in for Budget Day. And it was then very early on in this the Liberal government's tenure, and they were quite pleased that they were getting more kilometers paved for less money. But that's not really what we need. What we need is oh. for the pavement to last, not to, you know, brag about or boast how many kilometers got paved, because the kilometers that get paved, and a year from now, they're full of potholes and rots. Yeah. And, I mean, that's just not value for money spent. No, not not by a long shot. I, I've I've traveled most of this this country. Uh, I'm sixty odd years old, and uh, I've never all across this country. I've never seen roads like this with the ruts in it. I don't know what they're doing, how they're how they're putting substrate down or whatever, but something needs to change. They are putting a lot of money into the highways this year, and uh, I bet you five years from now, like they've never done. So something's got to change. Murray, what was the road conditions that made it a problem for you yesterday between Cornbrook and Borchie Lake? It's a, it's the ruts in, in both sides. Just the ruts, you, okay. You, you either got to ride the line in the center or in the shoulder. Now, if you ride the shoulder, they are getting it better. They've improved a lot of the roads here on the West Coast over the past few years. But I find those ruts, they come back within a couple of years, and uh, you're in the same boat, you know. Well, you're 100% right with the straddling because one of the fears I have when there's water accumulated on the road is hydroplaning like everybody else. And you don't have to be going at breakneck speed to hydroplane either. It can happen very innocently. So I do what everyone does. I straddle. Yeah. I straddle the ruts. So consequently, you're right. The shoulder presents a an opportunity for the straddle. But I think based on what I see with my own two eyes is people are more inclined to straddle it towards the center, which comes at a cost. Like in a double lane road here, like on the outer ring road, if every everybody's straddling towards the center, then all of a sudden we're a lot closer to each other than we should be. And then if you're talking about highway travel where there's only one lane in each direction, straddling to the center puts us a lot closer to oncoming traffic than we need to be as well. So that's what we all do because no one wants to be hydroplaning out there, but that straddle, it might come with, you know, a potentially safer ride when we talk about water, but potentially completely unsafe when we talk about other traffic on the road. Yeah. I, I had your plane once yesterday for about three seconds, and uh, I'm only doing 80 kilometers an hour. So it'll give you some idea how much water was in the rut, because I had no choice but to ride the ruts because there were potholes on the side, and I had a, I had a bunch of tractors drivers coming on the other side. So <laughs> I, rode this, I rode the ruts, and uh, I tell you, it was scary. It's heart, it. yeah, no question. I mean, for even three seconds, it's your heart in your throat because now you have absolutely zero control of your vehicle. It's it's driving itself. It's floating on top of that water. And the uh, last time I did it, same thing as you, two or three seconds worth, and it knocked all the wind out of me. Yeah, yeah, it's scary. It's very scary, Patty. Certainly can be. I appreciate the call, Murray. I'm glad you're okay. Yeah, thanks for the time, man. Anytime. All the best. All right, bye-bye. Yeah, Dave, have you ever hydroplaned? 
I know my father years ago had a really serious accident that, uh, when he hydroplaned and he's Buick LeSabre and upside down off the side of the highway. And like I said, it was just right there on Portugal Cove Road coming up to make the left-hand turn to get down the outer ring road. And I was doing no more than 60 uh, kilometers an hour. Next thing I know, I could feel the back of the rig fishtailing and I had zero control of the car. It was madness. All right, let's take a break for the news. When we come back, the social determinants of health. We're talk about issues regarding installments with CRA. Talk about Fiona and the Southwest Coast. And then there's a story from Mary. You're going to want to hear that one right after this. Don't go away. Stay informed and have your say on the news of the day with your VOCM. Join Linda Swain weekday afternoons from 4 to 5 p.m. for an hour of talk and discussion with decision makers and listeners like you. News talk on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go. Line number two. Glenn, you're on the air. Yes. Good morning, Patty. Thank you very much for taking my call. Happy to do it. Um, I want to speak a little bit concerning the rally and socially in terms of health. Um, kind of reflecting back on a very painful, um, um, you know, from a lot, of, a lot of people, you know, voicing very challenging, you know, conditions with, you know, themselves and their loved ones with addictions and mental health. I was thinking about a year or so ago at the same time, uh, I know Alex Newark and great credit for what he's done in professional hockey, that, you know, the premier was there. I know the government had four ministers and there was a number of the opposition and, and, and the independent member there at all, but it really speaks volumes at all, Patty, is that, you know, this is one of the biggest crises that not just this province, but this country, but around the world. And I know there was a call for the premier sort of thing. And I think it, it's imperative. I know it's a challenging issue at all, but more importantly, you know, you need to kind of lead by example at all. And it's great to have your minister there, but ultimately the buck does stop in the premier. Sure, absolutely. Go ahead. And, and you know, the other part around this is that, you know, it, it goes with, you know, the stigma sort of thing, but like, you know, it gets back to the whole issue around social terms of health. I mean, you know, the issue of the cost of living, you know, the housing crisis that we got here at all, you know, going into the winter at all, these extra, you know, fees and taxes that have been put on because of clean fuel and the carbon tax. I mean, I know the health accord has been out a number of years and all of the government has worked on it. But I mean, this issue around this basic income, especially for the most vulnerable in the community, more importantly, the people that are dealing with a number of challenges with addictions and mental health, you know, wondering when they're going to actually do some action on that because, I mean, you know, they're, they're putting money out to various industries. And I understand the importance of government in trying to give a good economic player for, you know, uh, you know these companies to, you know, invest and, and hire and, you know, create that economic, you know, uh, prosperity, so jobs and taxation. But, I mean, when you're leaving so many people to, you know, the not-for-profits and the charities out there at all, and they are so restricted at all, you know, I think it's time for the government uh, to kind of do something about this because I have grave fears of what's going to happen come the winter due to the fact that people are, you know, right now choosing again between eating or heating. But, I mean, coming this winter, I'm saying if we have a cold winter, I'm telling you, I think there's going to be people going to be starving. Yeah, I mean, the there's a lot of uh, different issues that bring us to cost of living stuff and not everyone's created equal you know whether it be people my age or seniors or youth but the problems are very real so when you say government do more like what does that mean because people will say those things all the time about what it actually means for government policy or focus areas or money spent or invested as some people refer to it so give me some specifics as to what you think is lacking and what needs to be done 
Well, I mean, outside the area of, you know, creating more mental health and addiction professionals in the system because there's still a long wait list, I think the issue of trying to do a targeted uh, basic guaranteed income for your most vulnerable out there, so at least give them a running chance because some of the work that I've done from an international standpoint at all has shown places, mostly the Scandinavian countries, Finland, Sweden at all, is when they've actually implemented that at all, you've actually had this population to do better. You know, they got their basic needs, but they've actually to the opportunity to go back to school or look for better chances to go into the employment sector or even get involved with the community sector. I think this is something that, you know, we do not need to have more studies because I know the Department of uh, Children's Senior Social Development has undertaken that wellness and economic uh, well-being study. But, I mean, there's reports in the basement of the Federation building of myself and others over the years sort of thing. So, like, I don't know why we need to keep re-studying this stuff at all because it has been proven in other countries. So like the old adage, you don't need to reinvent the wheel. If it works somewhere else, why can't we try it in this country or this problem? Things such as? Well, I mean, around some of the things of the basic income sort of thing at all. And also probably, um, you know, the other aspect at all, maybe taking some of the peer support models and taking away from government and actually putting it in private hands. Because I think there is a business uh, proposition for uh, for profit uh, peer support in the mental health and addictions. Uh, arena. Yeah, I mean, this falls into, and there's a couple of curious things with the Towards Recovery Report or what have you, but when we talk about, and you made reference to the social determinants of health, for the life of me, I don't understand why that isn't a, more of a key focus area. And I know inside uh, the world that the health accord, the work that the health accord has done, that's the key focus area, and as it should be, because simply spending money on healthcare does not get into the issue with just how frequently uh, people engage with the healthcare system, the chronic illnesses that plague so many people here in the province, because they're really quite clear, and the research is on top of the health accord. Man or woman level of education, amount of money coming in the door, a variety of issues like that, your sedentary lifestyle, your diet, all of these social determinants, if we get it right, and whether that be in the hands of not-for-profits or charities or private organizations or the government itself, getting that right is going to save us in healthcare. It just is. I mean, for a province of about 525,000 people to spend in the neighborhood of $4 billion a year on healthcare, and yet all of the issues with wait times and shortages persist, then obviously money has not been the BL and end all. It's trying to keep people out of the system as opposed to what we do in this country is we simply react to your health when your health deteriorates as opposed to more preventative medicine, so to speak. And that does mean a clear attention to all of these uh, social determinants of health. I mean, without getting that right, we're never going to be able to keep up and pay the bills for health care because it's just completely out of hand. The money spent on health care in every province and territory is alarmingly high. And has the system been proved because of the money? I would suggest no. I totally agree with you, Patty. I mean, I go back to a conversation I had with Tim Power several weeks ago when you were off around the issue of that report uh, former child youth advocate Jackie Lake Kavanaugh has put out about the perspective of kids missing a, a big chunk of the grade six. Are they going to graduate and get involved with the workforce or are they going to be in, involved with the, you know, crime or mental health or criminal justice and so on and so forth? And it goes back to a center that I spoke at the rally. It's called the Blackburn Center in Portland, Oregon, dealing with a lot of mental health and addictions 
a gentleman by the name of Ed Blackbird about 50 years ago created the centre when the addictions were going pretty wild in the western part of the United States where they gave them the support of housing, they gave them the opportunities to get all the health care that they required, they gave them vocational and uh, opportunities to get into the workforce at all, and the mental health professionals and the other support staff were living on a campus that was right next door. They had access to people right then and there. Maybe that's a model. I know the Centre of Addiction and Mental Health in Toronto was trying to get something. I'm hoping this could also come to the province of Newfoundland, and I'll do my darndest to make sure this gets there. Well, that report that you're talking about, I've spoken to it many, many times. And just to refresh people's memory, when the former child youth advocate, Jackie Lake Cavanaugh, did a report on chronic absenteeism, which means that somewhere in the neighbourhood of at least 10% of students in this province missed a month or more of school. Then you add in PD days and snow days, and uh, the, the kind of laxed approach to education as we lead into the Christmas holidays and on the heels of all these things. The biggest issue there is, like you said, involvement with crime or healthcare, what have you. The problem is we don't know because we don't track it. There are many different departments that need to be included in this conversation, but it would be extremely helpful to know that if the folks who are chronically absent, and the startling statistic here is that 75% of chronically absent grade sixes don't finish high school. So when we have to know who you are, why you're absent, and then consequently follow what happens to the chronically absent, maybe, just maybe, that'll give more focus to government and to individuals, because that's where political power should lie, is to know, well, here's the case. Chronically absent meant that X percentage ended up with uh, certain chronic health care issues or ended up in the courts and in the prisons. But we don't know. I mean, we can, we can surmise what happens to people who don't finish high school, but until we have real hard data to rely on to further the conversation, we're just guessing. And the guesses are probably fairly accurate, but there's nothing quite like real, documented, verifiable data to understand how big a problem that is, because I would imagine it's way bigger than people think. Uh, most definitely, and I think maybe the data collection should start from the point of once the child is born and right through the whole uh, stream of the education and beyond sort of thing. So then we have the data, because government always says about evidence-based decision-making at all, the data should be there and should be clear. And the old adage is that if we do prevention, we pay uh, dividends in terms of, uh, you know, it had to do with the reaction at all, because like you say, the amount of money that goes out to healthcare and justice over time at all, and other aspects at all. If we can do this right out of the gate, I think it's the old thing that Eastern Health had thing, you know, healthy people, healthy communities. We need to get back to that, Patty. Appreciate the time this morning, Glenn. Thank you. Thank you very much. Take Have care. Day. You too. Bye-bye. Too. I mean, at the very beginning of the chronically absent conversation is, I know teachers have a real full slate of duties already on their plate. Same with administrators. But we basically don't know. For the vast majority of the time, we don't really know why you're absent. So without even knowing that, it's hard to address any potential solutions for one individual, for one child or their family, because whether it be issues of fundamentals, transportation, even though hopefully some of that will get cleared up with this removal of the 1.6 kilometer arbitrary uh, number, but then it might be violence at home. It might be bullying at school. It might be... uh, There could be a dozen impacts as to why you don't find yourself in school, but when we don't know, it's hard to address it, and I know teachers have their hands absolutely full, so maybe this is a new role for, I don't know, the VP or what have you, because if we don't know, it's hard to do anything about it. Let's take a break for Robert with the CRA installment issues. You stay right there. You're next. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Robert, you're on the air. Yes, good morning, Patty. Morning to you. I'm uh, calling on behalf of a friend. She had an installment reminder from Revenue Canada. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, it's saying you have to pay eighteen hundred and thirty-one dollars to two installments uh, for taxes for twenty twenty-three. Now I have the papers in front of me where she paid her taxes in twenty twenty-one and twenty twenty-two. They just paid it off in full, and now getting a reminder to pay taxes in advance for 2023 never heard of it yeah cra tax uh installments are mandatory and it's something i unfortunately know a little tiny bit about so the issue is if your tax liability in the preceding year was greater than three thousand dollars whether it be for this year and either the two previous years then they are going to put you on an installment plan to pay this year it happened to me Oh. Yeah. <laughs> There's, the only province that has a different rule is Quebec. I think their threshold is between 1800 and $2,000. But for the rest of the country, again, if your total tax liability is greater than $3,000 for this year and or last year or the year before, then they can indeed put you on mandatory installments. So what happens now if you don't make this money? You know what I mean? If you don't have no earnings and... Uh you don't owe any taxes next year, just per se. Well, I mean, they'll know whether or not you have earnings that are reflective of pre- uh, previous years. So if you have, like, for instance, if you retired, there's ways to appeal a tax installment. But generally speaking, that's exactly what happens the vast majority of the time. When your total tax liability is $3,000 or greater this year, because it has to include this current year, plus either one or both of the previous two years. So CRA knows whether or not you're being taxed because of they've got your records right in front of them. So you won't be on an installment plan if your tax threshold will not be reflective of the 3000 bucks or greater. But that's absolutely what the, the case of the fact of the matter is. So anything over 3000 you should just go pay it. Yes, but even if you pay in full, because if I had a tax bill, a total tax liability of $3,500, and I paid it off the same day where I filed my taxes, they still can indeed put me on installments for next year. So I don't, like I had a problem with them, tried to figure it out, and I got nowhere in a hurry with CRA on this front, but they can indeed mandate it. And if you have a earnings that fall short of that tax liability, you'll have a tax credit. So that's their way of wiggling around the, the unknowns of how much you're going to make this year. But yeah, I think this is probably more frequent than not. The people in that, that tax liability front, they end up on the installment package. Yes, I heard uh, one more one more person that had it, and uh, <laughs> he said, well, I'm not going to deal with it. I said, well, you know, I've made a phone call for this friend of mine, and uh, if you don't pay it, I think they mentioned something about $100 a month added on, plus you will be taxed on that $100 a month <clears throat> at the end of the year. Yeah, well, it's a, I don't know about the $100, but they absolutely do have interest payments that will be on top of the installment that they requested. They give you, like, I think, 30 days to make the installment payment. But if you don't make it, they charge you interest. Yes, that's absolutely right. Yep. Oh, okay, my friend. Thanks for your time, and uh, enjoy your show. I appreciate the, your time, Robert. Thanks a lot. Good luck. No problem. Thank T- you. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. Yeah, it's, when it happens to you for the first time, it's like, oh, man, what's this? How, it's not even, you know, March was when I start worrying about my taxes. You get a letter in the mail in the middle of the summer that says, you owe me $1,800. It's kind of oh, confusing, and for many people, I would imagine it's quite alarming. Uh, let's go to line number three. Mary, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Good Hi morning. There. Good morning to you. I'm the first-time caller, and I'm 87-year-old, and I live in the retirement center in Clark Beach. 
But the reason why I'm calling, I'm concerned about my son. Okay. My son, my son he's only 56 year old, and he has bone cancer. And he used to go get his treatments every second week, besides his pills. But when he went through his treatments Wednesday and Thursday gone, the doctors told him the government's not paying for the treatments no more. He gave me, told him to go to his member, but now his wife went to Pam Parsons. She called her. I don't know if they got back to her or not. But my God, what is he going to do? Let him die without his treatments? So is there a medical rationale as to why they're stopping the treatment? No, the government the government got a plan. They're not paying for the treatments anymore. And what's... Down. I'm sorry, so, Mary. What specific treatments are we talking about? Uh, chemo. So, has a formal diagnosis. Chemo was the treatment uh, yes. designated by his doctor, and the government arbitrarily cuts him off from the treatment. Yes, yes. That, that's yes. the problem. And I'm worried because if he gets sick, he's going to die anyway. I mean, he got the cancer now five years, and these treatments are keeping him going. Like the doctor told him the other day, they only give him through March, but this is August, going to September. And the doctor said, well, you're, going, you're doing good with your treatments. You have to call your member, he told his wife, because his treatments is doing good. Now, if they stop his treatments, he's going to get sick. I don't think I've heard of a case where, I mean, of course, the government in this case would be MCP for all billing purposes. So they're simply, for one reason or another, saying no more chemo. No more chemo. And it's not because of a a, a medical concern with the amount of chemo that he's received and or radiation from other therapies so it's as simple as they're cutting them off i'd have to i'd have to find someone who can explain to me how that works because i don't think i've heard that before now the doctors the cancer doctors told her his wife to call pam person she did she said but she told me pam person never got back to her yet well that's their member okay I, I can't. Uh, I mean, I can't wrap my head around myself. I have to lose my daughter. I have to lose my son. I have to lose my grandson, my sister, and my brothers with cancer. So I don't want to lose him too. I understand. I'm here. I'm in a retirement center in Clark's Beach because I was in a apartment and I had to pay home care. But by I never days and days I never see her. And then my family, my Finn Bay Robinson, not very many, and McGregor is sick. And the rest is in the mainland, so I had to come here. I had no choice. Well, I'm going to find the right person to speak to this. I mean, whether it be blood cell level concerns or if it's simply a financial decision, then I really don't understand that, to be honest with you, Mary. But I know the the person that I can call to help us understand what goes on with potential breaks in chemotherapy. I can do that much. Well, my love, I hope you do. I hope someone steps in for the because he's supposed to have his treatments now next week. Now he won't be able to get him because the government won't pay for it. It's not right. Yeah, I don't know if it's, you know, whether or not chemo has been deemed effective or ineffective after certain courses of treatment and lengths of time or the numbers of time you've been treated for the same cancer over the years. I don't know, but I'll see what I can find out for you, Mary. Well, that's what the cancer doctor told his wife to call call a member. I said, government got to cut out. Okay. Right. I'll see what I can figure out. Well, my love, thanks for taking my call, and I hope something happens soon. I appreciate the time, uh, and I wish you and uh, your family well, Mary. Thanks for this. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah, now, at some point, and I can't speak to a specific medical circumstance because I don't know, but there are blood cell level concerns and whether or not after X number of treatments with no 
appreciable impact, you know, as opposed to, you know, managing symptoms because the chemo has been effective as per the, ca- the cancer doctor, if I heard Mary correctly there. So, you know, no one's going to be able to speak to exactly that particular person and their treatments, but the general conversation about how that happens and when decisions are made to take a chemo break or to cut it off in full. We'll see what we can figure out for Mary and her son. Okay, quick check-in on the Twitter. We're VOCM Open Line. You know what to do. Follow us there. Email address is openline at VOCM.com. Let's go ahead and take a very quick break. There's been plenty of conversation about crown lands. There was a private member's resolution introduced by Pleman Forsey some while back that was rejected by the majority government, and we're at a bit of a standstill. So we know, whether it be with uh, uh, agricultural lands and Adam Furlong's conversation that he's brought to the show many times before, and there were the number of families that, you know, you arrive at a point in your life where you think you're going to downsize and you're going to sell, you're going to move to a different community, closer to family, closer to health care, then lo and behold, the house is on crown lands and then the whole process of quieting of titles and the legal wrangling and the money and the time associated with it is a problem that's only becoming more and more apparent as uh, days weeks and months proceed so we'll talk a little crown lands and a bit of hurricane fiona when we come back don't go away your voice in newfoundland and labrador's biggest conversation if you want to know what's happening in your province tune in to open line every day have your say weekday morning starting at 9 a.m on open line with patty daly on your vocm welcome back to the show let's go to line number six take a morning to the pc member elected in and serving the folks of exploits that's playman forcey playman you're on the air Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. Good morning, Patty. I did hear your preamble before the news, dear, and, and Patty, you certainly uh, strikes the point of, of what we want to talk about this morning, you know. Um, you know, I'm still getting calls from individuals across the province, still having problems with, uh, especially around Section 36, which was uh, which was known as, you know, adverse possession or, or squatters' rights, and uh, and this is a, a lot of times are pertaining to the seniors in our province, you know, who want to sell their homes, downsize uh, for all kinds of reasons, you know, it could be health 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 issues or move into seniors' apartments or or whatever the case may be, and you know, but they find themselves, Patty in a battle with crown lands trying to get title to their lands which which they've lived on for years maintained for years you know they paid taxes for years and, and really believe they own their land you know which which leads them in, to frustrations and find themselves in high cost you know of legal fees trying to get this straightened out and uh, patty we've we've asked government on, on a number of occasions you know to bring in legislation to discuss the matter uh, you know to bring this the rules and regulations up to standards but uh, uh, you know, we, we just seem to find ourselves in the same position. And so I'm uh, I'm hoping with the new minister in place for this year that we're going to find some uh, legislation uh, brought into the House of Assembly so that we could sit down and talk about this. You know, uh, have a collaborative discussion and, and let's 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 get it done. Let's find some solutions to this. Even when we speak with Greg French, who's wealth of knowledge on Crown Lands, he is of course a lawyer based in Clarenville. Even some, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm trying to remember what the proposals that were brought forward by the provincial Liberal government to talk about Crown Lands. One was a five-year limit, future claims for adverse possession, if I remember. Mr. French says that will do very little. Uh, what were the other proposed changes? Uh, occupation for 10 years rather than 20 years before 1977? Yeah, there were three changes, Patty, that they were they meant to bring in uh, in January. And, and you're right. 
changed the uh, from 1976 or 1977 when when it stopped back to 10 years instead of 20 instead of going back 20 years you know they'd have to go back 10 but to this point now patty uh, really wouldn't wouldn't uh, solve much regards to the years because uh, you know since the legislation has moved on for another 10 years basically you know since since a, a review was supposed to be done in 2015 it would still bring back you know finding people in the situation to prove that land uh, you know uh, going back to find people who who, who lived there you know if they're still in that area uh, you know uh, or if they can recollect of of people owning that land another point was uh, was a time time setting of uh, to 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 prove that they uh, they had claim to the land, and uh, and the other other one was certainly was to uh, issue quick titles to uh, to uh, you know to take government's interest away from that land. There, I mean, this is going to be a bigger story than just the diamonds on Catalina, which is this kind of where the conversation was renewed here. Crown lands has long been a problem, whether it be the two distinct arms that are involved in the Crown lands issues, the Registry of Deeds and the Crown lands division. It kind of doesn't make a whole lot of sense the way we've got it constructed. But the solutions... I don't know exactly what they are. Maybe you should invite Mr. French back on the show because he knows so much more about it than I do. But when people will take, if you want to take the time and go to the province's website and look at the land use atlas, people will be shocked to know just how many uh, people are potentially living on Crown land. You know, even in some of the big, larger centers like in and around the Northeast Avalon, there's plenty of people going to find out the hard way that what they thought was their family land going back generations, they go to sell and then the research is done and what, lo and behold, Crown Lance. I know, uh, you know, and, and my colleague in, uh, from Bonavista, uh, Craig Party, you know, he, he brought some of this, he did bring a lot of those issues forward, uh, forward because he did find out uh, that there, that exactly, that was exactly what was happening. And, you know, the diamonds right now are, are a perfect example of what's happening here, you know, and, uh, simply, try, simply trying to sell their own patty, but find themselves in a high cost of lengthy weights, you know, and, and because government has, has refused to acknowledge their claim, uh, you know, uh, to which they own, uh, they own their land, you know, so it's, uh, there's, there's a lot of issues like that, and, and, I, and I've heard uh, I've heard Mr. French on your show. Certainly, he is he is a wealth of knowledge, no doubt, when it comes to crown lands. So, uh, but we uh, but our intent, Patty, was to uh, in the PMR at the time was to uh, bring in uh, for government to bring in legislation and, and 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 let's sit down and talk about it. You know, we know there's a problem. There is a big problem. They know it as well. So uh, we certainly need to get down to the brass tacks. Absolutely. I can't figure out a couple of things here, is why the government seems to be so obstinate on this stuff. You know, whether it be Adam Furlong and his very small agricultural proposal that's being hung up out of about an acre or so of crown land, and then some of the proposals made by the government to him. And for a family that, say, the diamonds, just to use as an example, for 40 years or, or whatever their number is, living in that home, on that land, all the while paying taxes to the community because they thought they owned not only the home but the land that the home sat on and yet you know how many thousands of dollars and the length of time is going to take for anybody to try to quiet that title to deal with the government on this front there should be even if we're working towards better policy updated revamped legislation government needs to show a willingness to be a little bit more understanding on these issues because it wasn't crown land being utilized by anybody but the diamonds and now all of a sudden, it's a big deal. So what that accommodation looks like has got to be something as we start to re- revamp legislation, just a better and easier process for people. They're not trying to hoodwink anybody. They're not trying to, you know, jump through a loophole in legislation. They found out 
after the fact. They found out at the 11th hour. So government, while we try to figure this out and the debate can happen in the House of Assembly where it belongs or on this program, then let's just make it a bit easier for everybody who finds himself all of a sudden, unbeknownst to them, dealing with the Crown Lands matter. It's just got to be easier. I concur, Patty, and and that was the issue of the uh, PMR uh, back in May. You know, we 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 knew we had problems. Uh, we had calls, we had uh, issues there, and uh, we just tried to bring in the PMR to uh, to try to resolve some of this. And you're right, you know, it, it seems like government uh, they they stood up and they voted they voted down, and I and I don't know why really, because uh, you know it was a PMR that uh, should have been passed in the House, and we and we should be dealing with this now. I appreciate the time this morning, Pleeman. Anything else you want to say? No, that's fine, Patty. It's just that uh, I do hope to see some legislation uh, later this fall that we can certainly get this issue uh, at least start the discussion on it. 100%. Thanks for this. Thank you, Patty. Take care. Bye-bye. Look, and it's not just the diamonds. It's just, you know, every time the Crown Lands pops up, I think of two different people, Adam Furlong and the diamonds, because one is a business agricultural issue and one is a private dwelling. And just thinking about time. That story regarding the diamonds in Catalina, that's two years ago. So can you imagine how many people out there, people applying for Crown Land has been a, a long, aggravating process for many. But when that issue pops up, if it's a couple of years later, just imagine the, you know, here I am. I want to move closer to my family, closer to health care, whatever it is, not made of money hoping to pocket some of the equity I have in my home, then lo and behold, not only do I need a lawyer for the real estate transaction, just the bare bones and stuff, now I've got to go through an additional layer of expense and time and aggravation to deal with an issue that should be much more fundamental, less costly, less time-consuming, because it just doesn't work the way it's currently constructed. Uh, Let's go to line number four. Murray, you're on the air. Good morning, Patty. Morning to you. How are you? Doing okay. How you doing? Thanks for taking my call. No problem. Uh, I just called to give you a update. What's going on on the southwest coast? Here in my home, nothing. Same thing. But I did get a call last week that they're going to send an engineer consultant there to see about putting rock around my house. So that would be a good thing. And I heard you talking about the millions of dollars. Yep. If you personally would come here to the Southwest Coast, I would personally take you around and show you the disgraceful abuse of the Fiona disaster money, Patty. Yeah, as we've discussed in the past, well, you know, my general thoughts were, yes, if people are abusing what was a devastating storm for so many folks, and that's obviously a major problem. But even just the full accounting for how, where every dollar came from and where every dollar went, I think that would be uh, helpful to individuals and businesses and governments and the Red Cross and anybody else who put in their effort and their money to try to help people recover because we all felt the aftermath of Fiona. I didn't have to live it, but I felt it. So I'd like to know exactly how that money got spent. I really would. I'm still feeling it, Patty. And this project they got going in Port of Bass right now, those 57 houses coming down that had no impact from Fiona whatsoever, I don't see how that can be done less than $15 million. And down here on the coast, nothing? There's something wrong. Yeah, well, <laughs> no one's ever been able to articulate exactly why one community gets a designation different from another community because I, I know that if people listen to the show all the time have heard me say this before, is Fiona didn't care. 
Fiona didn't care what community she was pounding with the sea surge and the rain and the wind. Everybody who suffered at the hands of that storm, it shouldn't matter what community you live in, where you call home, the storm was the storm was the storm. That's right, Patty. My house is here still in shambles. I haven't cleaned up anything, only the inside, the basement. I got everything. As the water comes in, two weeks ago I had water again. As it comes in, I just dry it out. All out round there. I'd say there's a cord of wood on my lawn out there, Patty. And I was told by one DFA worker last week, I got me winter firewood. Now, that's what's going on around here. They're laughing at us. Yeah, not good enough. Not good enough, Patty, no. I wish you personally would come here. I would take you around the coast and show you the disgraceful abuse of all this money. They even got, there's people here, Patty, got construction crew up from St. John's building personal docks, 40 foot, their own personal 40 foot docks with floating docks on them. Fiona money. And, and you know, I, I agree. Everyone lost their own, should have got a home, yes. But did they have buy them seventy, eighty thousand dollar boats and fifty, sixty thousand dollar trucks, you know? And and the rest of us here left with nothing? It's disgraceful. I don't imagine I'm gonna have the opportunity to get out to the West Coast uh, until sometime in the winter. But you know, it'd be helpful I suppose for me to actually see what's happening versus hear what's happening. It's helpful when people try to fill in uh, what they see and how it makes them feel and what the community recovery looks like. But I could use a look around myself. So if I do indeed get out west this this coming winter and I have the time, I'll look you up, Murray. I hope you do, Patty. I hope you do, sir. Thank you very much for taking my call. Anytime. Stay in touch. Thanks. All right, bye-bye. All right, uh, so we were just talking Crown Lands with Plyman Forsey, and I did mention Greg French, of course, the lawyer from Clarenville, who's been very generous with his time and information on Crown Lands. He's actually in the queue as well. Karen's there to talk about the high cost of rentals in town, and then whatever you want to talk about. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Karen, you're on the air. Hi, Petty. How are you? Doing okay, thanks. How are you doing? Um, it's stressful. <laughs> Uh, needless to say. Um, so uh, we're a family of four here in town. And uh, just recently we were given our three months notice uh, to evict um, under the termination of lease. So what that means is that the landlord at any given time can give you three months notice to evict yeah. under Section 18. So where does that leave us? So since um, since last Tuesday when I got to know this, um, I've been looking and I've had over over a hundred comments to places that's been on Facebook Marketplace, uh, the different NL group sites on Facebook as well, and uh, even on Kijiji, and I cannot come up with anything. Um, it's either they're renting a rent by the room. The rent cost that I'm looking around is over between eighteen to twenty two to twenty eight to twenty six hundred dollars a month. And that would be for a three bedroom unit? Uh some of them are two bedroom, some of them are three bedroom. Two bedroom units downtown um are looking anywhere between two, three, even over four thousand dollars. Uh, it's right there on the marketplace. We go in the rental category. Um, you could see for yourself or anybody out there. 
Um, mostly, uh, I won't tell you the location where I'm to right now, um, but the location I'm located in is mostly students, and they're renting a body room, and it's really overpopulating, and it's not giving any wiggle room for the poor family that's out there. I went to a couple of viewings uh, last week, and um, one would say it's there, but another one would say, okay, you know, so there's over 100 or 200 ba- uh, viewings. And basically it's, well, to the one who basically don't have anybody here. And um, like I commented myself, well, I don't have anybody here either. I don't have no family here in town and zero family. And it's just, I don't know how government can actually look at themselves in the mirror, number one. Given that we've got too many people, yes, it's really nice to help out people. And yes, it's really nice to have different people come in for university. But please understand that there are people in this province, in this city, even outside the city, there's people in Cornerbrook, Clarenville, like, you know, at Aranda Bay, that are looking for places to get. And the places are not there because they're not, they're not, no one is willing to say not rent a butter room. They want their mortgages covered, and I get it. But the government needs to step up and fix it. What does that mean? They need to re put instead of putting all these hotels in, then start building apartment buildings. Or instead of having so many people coming in, look at per capita what we need as a province as a whole first. Do we have enough places here to actually hold if one quarter of St. John's was to go homeless? We don't. There's not enough buildings around. Yeah, but of course, the government is not in the business of building hotels, but they have kind of in some form. And this is successive governments federally and provincially have not really kept up with social housing requirements. It's been building for years. And whether, you know, international students and or newcomers if you backed out half, let's just say that number was reduced in half, the vacancy rate would still be woefully uh, dangerous out there or woefully tricky. So it's less than 3% now right here in the city. Even if you cut those numbers in half, even if it improved it to 4% or 5%, we'd still have lengthy wait lists and 50 and 100 viewings for every single rental that came up. So that in and of itself isn't going to settle or solve the problem as it exists today are you willing to look outside the city i it's impossible for me to i work in healthcare, so um i'm designated to the saint john's area because well if you go if you look on our career site um everything outside of the city you're going down to a part-time status so why would I give up my like why would I give up my position that's full time right now and benefits? Oh no, I'm not suggesting you should do anything like that. Uh, I was just asking if you're able to look. So just help me understand that part a little bit clearer. You are designated to work in St. John's. That means that you can't live in Mount Pearl. Oh yeah, I could live in Mount Pearl, and I could live in Paradise, and I could live in St. John's, but I cannot leave, say, uh, Mount Pearl, Paradise, or St. John's area. Like, I have to be within the vicinity. The furthest out that I could go is at least um, Kelly Groups. That would be the furthest that I can go. And that's because of your contract? 
No, that's because of like that's the only place that would be like make it affordable to live. Like right now, if I was to take my two children out of daycare, I lose a their spot. So again, I got another issue. So not only do I have a housing crisis, but I would also lose a spot at daycare. I would have to put them in school because two of them are in K and grade three. So where does that get me? Then I'd have to try to find a babysitter, and I have no family to help me out with. How much is the maximum you could pay for a two or three bedroom unit? Eighteen, nineteen. Eighteen or nineteen hundred. A couple of landlords that listen to this program usually chime in when there's an apartment-related conversation. I know a buddy of mine who I spoke with the other day. He put a unit up on it was Facebook Marketplace or something, one of those sites, and in thirty minutes he had one hundred and seventy-five people wanted to have a look. In thirty minutes. Yeah. It's remarkable. A hundred percent remarkable. But in like some areas, it's almost like a nightmare. Um, I think that if if it was to um, if it was to actually like eighteen nineteen to me that's that's pretty decent de- pretty decent rate. Um, but when you're looking at like people are charging twenty two twenty three twenty four twenty six twenty eight, and then you look up and then no another one's asking like three thousand, downtown's asking like over three and four thousand. Those are pretty those are pretty messed up prices. It's a lot of money for a rent, uh, for a rental, no doubt about that. It keeps popping up, and I know it has irrelevant in this conversation. But you know, I saw an apartment in the east end of Vancouver, two thousand dollars a month, and the apartment was two hundred square feet. I mean, yeah. what is going on? Uh, I appreciate the time, Karen. We have your number. If any of those landlords that uh, uh, listen to this program have a unit right now or in the very near future, and would like to connect with you, I will share your contact info with them. How's that? Uh, without doubt, I tell you, I'm ready to move in for September the 1st would be ideal just so I could even get the children, you know, situated with school. Um, that would be ideal. But if October 1st, that's fine still as well. I appreciate the time. Good luck, Karen. If I get any helpful info, I'll pass it along. All right. Thank you so much, Patty. You're welcome. Take care. All right, bye-bye. Uh, and as we were uh, just wrapping up our call with Karen, one of the landlords, property management people that I do know that tries to help out when possible, sent an email and says they have nothing. He's going to check if they have anything coming up in the, in the near future, but that's the kind of response that I hear more often than not is we really just don't have anything. Why? Because the demand is massive. Uh, let's go ahead and take a, another one for the news. Let's go to line number six. Caller, you're on the air. Good day, Mr. Daly. Good day to you. We've been talking about the same old topic now for the last four or five years. Uh, I'm wondering when is a turtle going to win the race, uh, our NDP, Mr. Singh. All he does is talk, 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 but no action by the dental program. Have you any updated news, man? Well, it's been launched. Uh, it comes in phases, and of course, this is something pushed for and promoted by the NDP. And of course, they got their way when they signed this, or they entered into this uh, supply agreement with the federal liberals. So it's it's begun to roll out. For the first wave, it was uh, eighteen and under. Hmm. What's the 
What's time, what time is he going to start like for seniors or low-income wages? I, I don't know. There no. are some dental programs f- through the province for low-income seniors and the like. I don't know if you qualify for any of that, but I don't have a clear timeline for when the next wave of dental care on the national front is coming. I can have a look around and try to figure it out, but the first group were 18 and under. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, well, I'm not talking about another topic. Now, uh, do you ever watch a horse racing? I do, actually. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, there, was a, there was one on there two weeks ago. Uh, I guess the first one since uh, King Charles took his throne there, the King's Plate. Yeah. That was a beautiful race. What made it a beautiful race for you? Well, uh, he had uh, he picked the horse that was going to win. When she got when that horse got out of the gate, she just just blew the other 16 you know it's just kept on going yeah I mean it was Paramount Prince won the King's Plate Mm -hmm. Uh, that is Mm -hmm. they've been running the King's Plate I'm going to say 160 years or so so yeah. it's a long-running uh, race that, of course, takes place at Woodbine Racetrack uh, in Toronto. So you say you picked Paramount Prince? No, I picked another one. But like I say, when 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 the horse came at the gate, she just she just she never looked back. She just she won by roughly around four lengths, that, and, and that was pretty good coming at the gate. Yeah, four lengths ahead of the third the show horse, but it was a little yeah. closer for the uh, the runner up. So maybe a couple or two and a half or so. I actually watched the race as well. Uh, okay. I do appreciate the ponies. It's not as glamorous as it once was. Lots of shady stuff going on in horse racing these days. But I did see the King's Plate. Yeah, and there was another one on there the weekend too, with the, uh, out in the states. So when she when the horse got at the, at the gate, she I believe she was two two lengths away from winning. And the horse went down, and he had to euthanize her. It's all too common. Mm-hmm. It, it really is. It's, it's simply all too common. Yeah. Well, you have a nice day, and like I say, I guess we'll get our dental program sometime. I'll have a look around and see if there's a definitive date as to when the next wave of dental care coverage is coming. Off the top of my head, I don't know. Okay, have a nice day. I'll figure it out. Thanks for the call. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, so let's take a break for the news. When we go back, we are indeed going to pick up the Crown Lands conversation with Greg French. He's our lawyer friend from out in Clarenville. Don't go away. Nutrition, exercise, keeping the cold at bay. Whatever keeps you feeling great, the Wellness and Healthy Lifestyle Show on your VOCM. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number two. Good morning, Greg French. You're on the air. Good morning, Patty. I guess your ears were ringing. <laughs> well, someone called and told me that uh, Crown Lands was being discussed, so I had to tune in as quickly as possible when I heard that. Yeah, once again, it was Pleman Forcey, of course, who was the PC member for exploits, and he did table a private member's resolution that got absolutely nowhere. So I, as far as I could tell, the Crown's land, Crown Lands issue hasn't improved one iota since that story regarding the diamonds on Catalina. Do you have any updates, or what should we be considering this morning? Well, it's funny because I was while I was on uh, online, I was listening to the previous caller about uh, shortage of rental properties and reading the news here. Um, I believe the federal minister was on the show recently uh, about an all hands on deck approach to increase affordable housing. So it's bizarre that we have a situation where we have a shortage of housing, but plentiful available land, and we have. Uh, an approach being taken by government that's almost hostile to existing housing. I mean, Mr. and Mrs. Diamond came up in uh, in Mr. Forsey's call, and this is a house that they've had for sale that I believe they even have a buyer for in this case that they just can't sell because we can't get around this problem. 
Now, Mr. and Mrs. Diamond have a trial coming up in just over 30 days at the beginning of October. So I'm very hopeful that government is working on this and can come up with a solution in the meantime so that the Diamonds don't have to be put through the considerable expense of a trial on this matter. I mean, this is a matter that's come before the House, it's come before the news, it's been in the public eye since last November, but here we are today, at the end of August, on the eve of the Diamonds having to go to court on this, and we're no further ahead in terms of the government's position. Okay, and I mean, I know you're representing the Diamonds, so you can't get too deep into it, but in general terms, when a family like the Diamonds run up against this Crown Lands issue, what kind of time and associated estimated expense will be incurred? Well, it all depends, Patty, because squatters' rights is ubiquitous throughout Newfoundland, and in many cases, it can be solved without ever having to go to court. It can be solved with affidavits of possession, as we call them. Uh, I can think from my own family, for instance, that uh, we had a house on Prescott Street, and that's been standing since after it was built after the fire in 1892. The title to it on paper may not be very good, but it could be solved with affidavits proving that that house has been there since the 50s. And I know it was because my grandmother moved into it in the 40s. But the paperwork might not be in order at the moment. So in certain cases, it's just a matter of documentation of a claim that may never be fought but needs to be properly documented. Then you run into situations like the Diamonds where the house was built a long time ago and there's a debate over the historical use of it. I won't go too deep into the details on it except to say that in my view it's well-founded. But there are many other families, and I've received many calls after appearing on uh, on your show, Patty, from people in similar straits from one end of the province to the other, where the house was built in the 60s or the 70s, and everything was done by the book at the time. might have even been certified by lawyers time and time again, but now there's a problem when they go to sell. And and their options are go to the government and try and straighten it out or go to court and try and straighten it out. And the ones who've gone to the government have turned around and said, we've been in the queue for two or three years waiting to hear back. And then we were rejected. And in a couple of cases, they received notices under Section 25 of the Lands Act that they have to vacate the premises within 30 days. Let's talk about potential solutions. When the government proposed three different changes, if I remember correctly, and I looked at some of the news story during the break, you've made past comment on all three. The first one is a five-year limit for future claims of adverse possession prior. What does that mean, and why is that not a a fair solution or a component? We are, again, looking at tens of thousands of properties across Newfoundland and tens of thousands of people who don't even know that they're caught up in this because they haven't had to buy or sell their house in decades. Perhaps they've been there 40-plus years and think everything is fine because nobody's bothering them. It creates an economic problem that you have a lot of – this particularly affects senior citizens, I'll say, because this is people who bought their land and bought their homes 30, 40 years ago. Mm -hmm. So now we're putting on them an economic deadline that you must get your land certified. You must get your deeds registered. You must get it surveyed. While if the law doesn't change, it might just be putting them into the maw of the machine here, that now they come forward with a problem that exists on paper only, and as soon as they go to apply to straighten it out, aha, you actually built your house in 1965, and previous 10 years it was a grass field. So now you lose your house. So a five-year deadline without changing anything else is not going to get everybody in, and it's going to get a lot of people caught up in the same situation. 
Next one they brought forward, and I believe you refer to it as a Band-Aid solution, is occupation. Proof of occupation for 10 years versus 20 before 1977. Uh, to me, when I just hear it, you know, as stated as a fundamental potential solution here, it sounds like a good idea, but possibly not in your estimation. Why not? Well, that'll only fix the problem for people in two circumstances. The people who built between 1956 and 1966, so every house built in the 50s and 60s where the title might not be in order unless the deadline was kicked up, and for people who can't find living deponents, that is to say, everybody who can swear to the history since 1956, they're dead or they have dementia or there's just nobody available. I mean, you go to a town of maybe 100 people at its peak, and you're just not going to find very many people alive today, if anybody, who can swear to that history. So moving at 10 years doesn't really change a whole lot for the major problem. It's a Band-Aid in that, all right, now we have we can go 10 years younger for getting people to sign affidavits, but it doesn't change a lot for anything occurring after 1966. So if you built your house in 67 or 68, tough luck to you. You're no better off. So for more usage, and not just a diamond-specific issue, because this has business implications, agricultural business models that can't be satisfied because of crown land tangles, individuals like the diamonds and many others who will face very similar circumstances, and you had the reins, and you had your druthers. Where do we start with solving this? Because the diamonds is just scratching the surface. Well, Patty, I'll tell you, I know it's scratching the surface because on my desk right now I have a list of 14 other people who are currently before the Supreme Court with Crown land objections to their land. Eight of them have houses on it. Twelve of those 14 have no other objections. Nine are in municipalities. And here we are. So, I mean, on my own desk, not speaking for any other lawyer in the province of Newfoundland and Labrador, not speaking for anyone else in the community, I'm at 14. And so if I had the ability to fix this, the solution is quite simple. The law needs to get in touch with reality here, that if you are in possession of the land now, if you've got a house on it, if you're paying taxes on it, if you have deeds on it, is there a public interest in pursuing recovery of this land or penalizing these people? No, there's not. So we have to provide a mechanism to standardize it, get everybody on the books so the government can know who owns what, who's on what, get people to come forward, take the punitive aspect out of it. And uh, in a lot of these cases, I mean, under the Quieting of Titles Act, when we file a quieting, the government has 30 days to come in with a decision of whether or not to intervene, meaning the government has to choose whether or not they're going to pick the fight or not. The government can simply say, we're going to stay out of it and let the court decide. But for every other person who doesn't come forward on a quieting, the government no further ahead in terms of knowing who owns what, because under the registry-based system that we have in this province, where the I think it's only us and Prince Edward Island that have a registry-based system still in Canada, mm-hmm. under a registry-based system, the government doesn't know who owns what land. The government has no hand in certifying who owns what land. It's a complete mystery to government the exact scope of private land in this province. They don't know what is and isn't crown land, and that creates a major problem. So to fix this, simply make it so people can come forward to the government so the government can know who owns what, the government can put it on the books, and we can reconcile everything once and for all. So does that simply mean we go back to the way it was pre-1977? 
Not at all, Patty. I would say it's entirely possible to do it almost like a game of musical chairs. The problem with the way we've done it is we did exactly that, and we cut it off in 1977, and we took no further steps to figure out who owned what or to normalize the records. If we say, as of today, if you're on your land and you occupy it and you have documentation and there's some legitimacy to your claim, details of which to be worked out by government, come forward, we'll put you on the map, we'll make it official, but no one else is getting it unless you come forward. You'd have to cut off squatters' rights once and for all, which they tried to do in 1977. They just didn't do anything after that and let the system work itself out, which unfortunately has put us in the mess we're in today, where people genuinely believe, well, I've never had a problem before, so clearly I don't have a problem now wrong. The, pe the only people getting punished are the people who have to come forward to try and fix it in order to sell or in order to mortgage. It's remarkably tangly when it seems like it should be much more fundamental, as you rightfully point to. Uh, final thoughts to you, Greg, before we say goodbye this morning. Well, final thoughts to me, I would say... You know, there are people who are under a very definite time crunch here, and the Diamonds case is a public one, and it's one that uh, the opposition critic has spoken on. I have just over 30 days to prepare for this case, and if this is something that can be worked out, I would beseech the government to find a solution for these people that doesn't involve them having to go through a two-day trial in court. Surely to God there's a way that this can be solved in the meantime, and certainly for everybody else on this list and everyone else in the province, there has to be a way to solve this while we solve the overall problem, an interim solution, an easier way to come forward and resolve these things, because in my view there is no public interest in pursuing these claims. If it's legitimately based, make it so that people can come forward and get standardized. Really appreciate your time and information as usual, Greg. Thanks a lot. Thank you for having me. Take Patty. good care. Bye-bye. As Greg French, our go-to on the Crown Lands issue, and just for the caller, just before the news, talking about the universal dental care benefit. I want to appreciate, uh, say thanks to Mark for sending along the, uh, the deets. So... $13 billion over five years for families whose income is less than $90,000 and don't have dental insurance. The plans roll around three phases. Coverage extended to children under 12 years old by the end of last year. Children under 18 years old, seniors, and those with disabilities will receive coverage by the end of 2023, and then all families that meet the income threshold by the end of 2025. There you go. Let's take a break. When we come back, FFAW President Greg Purdy is there, and Crystal wants to talk about treatments that her father-in-law is not getting. Don't go away. Welcome back to the show. Let's go to line number one. Good morning, Greg Purdy, who is the president of the FFAW. You're on the air. Morning, Patty. How are you? Very well, thanks. How about yourself? Good, good, good. Calling this morning about the uh, situation in St. Anthony. It's, uh, it's a conversation, I guess, that's better placed in, uh, in the last century, but, uh, but here we are uh, dealing with uh, conditions in a unionized workplace under collective agreement. That really smacks of a Charles Dickens novel. What's uh, what's going on down there? And it actually got worse this morning. Paint us a picture, because you would imagine when things fall short of the Canadian labour standards, it'd be automatically things triggered that ensure standards are met. So, what's happening in the plant? Well, let's let's back it up a little bit. Uh, there's a collective agreement in place. Uh, we had some difficulties there in uh, 2020. Uh, we did as every union does. Uh, they grieve it. Uh, it goes to arbitration. There's an award comes out of the arbitration, and in this case, the award was was very much in favor of the union, and uh, against uh, some of the management activities of the plant. Well, that's terrible. 
there's the award, you know, we move on with our lives. And uh, the next year, um, the individual responsible for most of the difficulties in the plant uh, didn't work there. He didn't work there last year. Uh, he's back this year, and uh, he's right back to square one. And uh, here we go again. We had 15 grievances in the plant in uh, 2000, uh, 2001, and, uh, and now we have five, and same conditions, man. Uh, you got people who are falling down at the workplace. Uh, this guy's ignoring occupational health and safety issues for individuals. And uh, there are grievances in there again, and they're hell-bent. They are hell-bent on, on, on pushing their agenda, which is very much anti-worker and anti-union. So, you know, your, your point is a good one. We can do the same thing again. We can uh, uh, issue a grievance, and we'll go through the arbitration process, and that'll take five or six months. But really, you know, plants like Royal Greenland can't operate this poorly unless they have a license from the province to do it. In other words, the processing license. There's nothing in place there, but we're going to argue that there should be. And the other issue is the Department of Labor. And, you know, the Department of Labor, the ministers in both ministers, fisheries and uh, and uh, labor, are tuned into what's going on here, and we're going to ask for an investigation. Uh, that's a little unusual, because usually things can be dealt with under the collective agreement and the grievance process. But in this case... Uh, in this case, what happened this morning was uh, they actually turned on harvesters in the area uh, to, you know, to inflict their will upon harvesters. Meaning what? Meaning what? Yeah. There was a, there was a, uh, a guy who, who reposted a picture of the barbecue, the community barbecue we had on Friday in St. Anthony. Because of that, uh, his father has lost his position as barge operator in Conch. His name is Stephen Bromley. It's a great news story there for you, if, if anybody's interested. And as a result of that, he's been told by the individual, Stedman uh, Leto, that uh, the company may not uh, purchase any more fish from him uh, for the rest of the year. So that's a very strong message coming out from the company, that you stay in line here with what the company wants, or they will blackball you. So that's what's happening there, and that's quite, as you said, quite outside the, the norm. It belongs in the story 100 years ago, but here we are in 2023 with Royal Greenland exerting their will, and not only fish plant uh, workers, but harvesters too. Okay. So it's a pretty sad situation. So what did the picture depict that made anybody cross at Royal Greenland? Like, it was, if it was a picture of people standing around at a community barbecue, what's the implication there? Yeah, good question. I guess people like hot dogs, I guess, is the implication. But, but you know, you have to talk to them about that. But so, so now I have one example, and I have, I have the use of his name, Stephen Bromley. You can give him a call, get the story up there. We're going to go. We're going to do what we can legally to make sure this guy is compensated uh, for lost income. Uh, but, you know, the message is out there that uh, these guys – you, you do what they're told, or you'll be blackballed in this province by, by Royal Greenland. When it comes to the other grievances, can you give us an example of what they include? Because that, that level of intimidation is one thing, and we absolutely will follow up either on this program or sure. the newsroom that's tuned in here. So is it like lack of personal protective equipment, or is it about work conditions, or the lunchroom? Like, what is it? It's, uh, it's the amount of time that people have working that have um, a daily limit on working and a weekly limit. 
That was the same issue that was uh, uh, fought uh, two years ago. We're right back at it again now. You know, we have people who are who are uh, not, not safe at the workplace after a certain period of time. They, they can't get time off. They're being pushed to the limit by a company that ignores not only our collective agreement, but the laws of the province. I mean, there are minimum standards in place here, too. But uh, none of that uh, applies in St. Anthony under this, under this cast. What are these work limits? What kind of hours and days straight are we talking about? Well, he works them past the uh, contractual hours. And he doesn't give them a break. In fact, if you indicate that, uh, you know, you may need to get off for, for a family issue or something, uh, they w- you'll be reminded that, uh, you know, uh, that we'll re- they'll remember what's going on. Or the answer is flat, no, you can't do it. So it's, it's been a, a brutal season once again this year. And off we go again, you know, fighting the same battle we had two years ago. But we need uh, intervention here on, on a couple of issues here, occupational health and safety in particular, and uh, the, the um, Department of Labor as to an investigation of, of what is going on uh, in St. Anthony that drives them. These are battles, Patty, we fought, you know, 50 years ago when our first plants were organized. Yeah, there were, there were companies who did what they wanted to do with workers. They fired people for no reason. They intimidated them. Uh, they said, "Look, you're come to work here. We'll, you know, we'll call. We'll make it life difficult for you." And the same thing is playing out here. And and it's, you know, this is a new century. Uh, one way or another, Royal Greenland has to be dragged into the 21st century. And I know they'll go kicking and screaming because there's absolutely no need of what's going on in this province today with Royal Greenland. I will give him a chance to respond here on this program, of course, whether that be Mr. Leto or the company at large. Uh, what did they process there? Is it a snow crab plant? Yeah, they're multi-species plants, yep. And on that front, we'll follow up with Royal Greenland, and I'm sure the newsroom has picked up on Stephen Bromley's name. Um, what percentage do we think of the total allowable catch of snow crab has been landed? Because as far as I know, the season is over in a couple of days. Yeah, it's about. Uh, I think it's around ninety six percent as of today, in that in that range. So we're getting there, and it looks like it'll all get landed. And very quickly, because this was a really difficult season, which has led to difficulties for individuals and employment insurance implications and all the rest of it. So the thought is that if there's not a change to the price-setting process and the way we currently arrive at a price, which seems antiquated in and of itself, two entities put in a price, one is picked. No gray area, no compromise, no attention to fluctuations based on uh, market pressures. So have that has that conversation advanced at all because if not the same thing that happened this year is quite likely to happen next year uh, very good point sir I think it's exactly what we're telling us uh, you know we have to start the process very shortly there have to be preconditions to do that obviously and we're willing to engage in that process we need that needs to be well we need a formula in fact Patty, we've had a formula for the last four months uh, whether people like it or not, it's been in place. And in fact, it, uh, towards the end of the season, they were actually spit out a 260 price to harvesters who are still, still fishing. So that, that's significant. So they are they have worn the saddle for four months, and but it needs to be fine-tuned, and, and we need to do it. It's been a hell of a year. It's been a very difficult year. It's the most difficult year that I can, that I can remember in the union. Uh, we have uh, EI issues right now. I mean, in the midst of this, the federal government came out and changed the qualifying periods to the point where uh, many plant workers will lose six weeks 
of coverage going into the uh, winter. Can you imagine that? I mean, did, don't, don't they have the Internet? Is anybody in Ottawa watching what's going on here? But they've, they've compiled, they've compounded the problem uh, with, um, with uh, plant workers. On the harvester issue, you know I went to Ottawa in June. I had a, a very uh, detailed plan as to how to help people who would fall short based on, 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 uh, on low incomes and uh, zero uh, uptake on it, zero. We're not letting it go. Uh, we have, there's new ministers of fisheries in there now. And we're hoping for renewed uh, uh, dialogue on how we move forward with these plans for both harvesters and, and plant workers. But, uh, you know, that's, that's the work of the union, and that will continue. I would imagine it's also in the best interest of the province, the provincial government, the Association for Seafood Producers, because the exact opposite could happen on another species in another season. It might be the price that they wanted didn't get selected. And then, consequently, we got standoffs at the war for bringing stuff in from elsewhere to process and all the rest of it. So I would think for a bit more of a seamless industry, which is plagued seasonally with very, very similar problems year over year over year, Getting this right can kind of settle a bunch of stuff, as far as I can tell. I mean, I'm no expert in it, but, you know, we hear arguments on either side all the time. And you would you would think that if it's bad for ASP and bad for the FFAW all at the same time, then it's probably in everyone's collective best interest to just simply change it. Uh, you're right. No, no question about it. Uh, it's important. Uh, it's very Our members are in favor of a formula that will allow an orderly fishery, in, not only on a start, but your role, you share the risk on, on market issues, up and down, just as we did this year. You know, you didn't hear anybody out there screeching and bawling because we had a formula in place. Uh, but, you know, had we not gotten the formula in place, Patty, we would have been pretty well stuck with prices below on, on, on uh, reconsiderations in particular. We could have been stuck with prices as low as $1.86, and capping it off at 220, no matter where the market went. So that's that's how significant this is. We're willing to do that. We're willing to engage that. I know the province is there, but you know, uh, there's a mindset there that's a lot like Royal Greenland, right? You'll do as you're told, and not what you want. So we're, we're still combating that in many respects, but uh, there is a will to have a formula in place, and we'll push that as far as we can to, to ensure that we have something different in place that works for the province, that shares the risk. I appreciate the time, Greg. We're off to the news. Anytime, Patty. Thanks very much, sir. My pleasure. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye. That's Greg Pretty. He's the president at the FFAW. Okay, and Royal Greenland is absolutely uh, welcome to come on to speak to the comments coming from Mr. Pretty, as well as we'll get the Association for Seafood Producers on, Mr. Loader, in the near future to talk about this season and the plans going forward. Let's take a break for the news. When we come back, Crystal, you're next to talk about your father-in-law. Don't go away. Join Greg Smith weeknights at 545 as he chats with local musicians about life, inspiration shows, and new music. Tune into Soundcheck, your backstage pass to the local music scene on your VOCM. Welcome back. Uh, let's go to line number five. Crystal, you're on the air. Hi, Patty. Thank you for taking my call today. No problem. First time caller. Welcome to the show. Um, thank you. Um, so I am the daughter-in-law of the man that Mary called about earlier. Um, I just wanted to be able to share some more insight in the current nightmare that our family is going through regarding my father-in-law's cancer treatment. Okay. 
So he was diagnosed with multiple myeloma, which is a type of bone cancer, a bone marrow cancer, back in 2018. And this cancer is an incurable type of cancer, so he cannot enter into remission. But with treatments, he can keep his cancer numbers low enough that he can be somewhat healthy. So that's been about five years now. So he has gone through some different treatments. They go through them till they work, and then they switch it up. So back in 2022, January, he started this current treatment that we have been that he is no longer being covered for. So he started this treatment, and this treatment has been working for him. And um, a few weeks ago, at the beginning of August after they had his treatment, uh, they received a phone call from the pharmacist stating that this treatment is only covered for 18 months by the hospital um, and that it's $10,000 a month and that uh, they wanted to help see if they could get the manufacturer to cover the remaining, like, rest of the treatment so that he could continue with it since it was working for him. Now, we were never made aware that there was a timeline on how long this treatment was covered or were we made aware of, like, how much the treatment was. So they reached out to the manufacturer and they said no, they would not cover it because their statement was that they don't cover compassion. Um, which was also kind of took us back a little bit because we know that this is an incurable type of cancer, but an individual can easily live 8 to 10 years, if not longer, with treatment properly put in place. So he ended up with 20 months of this treatment. So we don't know who actually covered the additional two months, um, but when he went in for his treatment last week, um, up until his treatment, they nor the healthcare professionals that was working with him knew what was going to happen. Um, and then towards the end of the treatment, uh, the healthcare professionals had to take his line out with knowing that he would not be receiving any more due to the fact that it was no longer going to be covered. So this is all about a predetermined timeline and number of treatments, not a medical issue with blood cell levels or a chemo, a scheduled chemo break. This was all about time period. Absolutely. Okay. And we were never made aware that there was an 18 month that they were covering it. Now, I don't know who chooses or makes a decision about what the 18 month mark was, but we, they were told that most people do not actually have success on this treatment and that therefore they don't usually continue covering it. So the fact that he has been one of those very like low amount of people that have experienced uh, success, it kind of feels like a punishment that, hey, this is working for you, but we're not going to cover it because it usually don't work for people. Um, and it's a, it's $10,000 a month, so it's not even something that we can reasonably fundraise as a family because, I mean, that would be $120,000 a year. So we're all kind of feeling blindsided because, one, we didn't know that there was going to be a cap on the coverage. Um, two, it's working, and the fact that they wanted or they helped us try to get the manufacturer to cover it to continue these treatments shows that it's not because of uh, wanting to end treatment for any medical reasons. That is solely due to the cost of it. And we know that the medical professionals, I mean, he's received great 
care, the pharmacists, the nurses, the doctors, they've all been excellent. They are not the ones that are making these decisions. Um, so I don't want to put anything negative on them, but someone is making these decisions and we just want to get our story out there, maybe get some guidance to better understand like if we have options because even if, um, I could even understand it a little bit more if it was a drug that was experimental, it was never used, we don't know if it's going to work and we were trying to get it approved, but this is something that was approved and paid for for an extended period of time and now it's just going to stop because of the cost. If it's something that isn't working, then I would imagine it's in everyone's so-called best interest to look for alternatives. But if it is working, even if it's a rare occurrence where it works for one person or another, you'd think that would be enough to justify continuing. Number one, it's hard to know whether or not something's going to work until you try it, but if it's been largely ineffective, it's a wonder that it's a go-to treatment, period. Exactly. So because he's had success, and I know a lot of people haven't, they had even had the discussion that maybe the manufacturer would be interested because here is someone who is benefiting from your treatment. But no, their reply was they do not help with compassion, which to me, like trying to understand what the definition of compassion is, I think of someone who only has a very short period of time to live and you're trying to help with that. But I mean, you're talking years. He's already gone five years. Um, He still has many years that he could go with the proper treatment. So it just comes across as completely unethical to take something from someone who it's working for because of the cost and you've already provided it for an extended period of time so when we received the call that it was only covered for 18 months he was already into his 19 months of treatment and he got 20 months out of it so if you're that flexible that you got an extra two months like why is it that it's being cut off so when they took the port out of his arm on like last week, the healthcare professionals that was working with him, they had tears in their eyes because they know exactly what this means for him. Um, right now, it's we're just going to monitor and see what happens to the cancer numbers in his blood, but we already know what's going to happen because last summer he had COVID and he ended up having to go an extra week without treatment until he recovered. And even in that length of time, his cancer numbers were up. So... I we're we're lost at this point now. Um, I've ca- I've contacted the MHA when we first got this news, after we found out that the manufacturer um, was not going to cover it, and uh, I requested a meeting because it was time sensitive and urgent because we are talking about his life, and um, I I got an email back the next day and they had said to call in. So I called, I gave the information. My um, father-in-law had provided uh, confirmation that I could speak on his behalf with them. We never heard anything back. So I have called them twice since then. Both times I've called, they, they told me they would review the file and get back to me, and they have not called me back. Uh, it's a, not only a sad but a very troubling story uh, when we hang up here this morning 
I can't remember the particulars of a federal program called Special Access Program. I don't know if it's simply for treatments or drugs not available in Canada, but it does deal with compassionate or emergency situations. Give that a quick Google, see if there's anything in it where that might be of help, because if it is about simply programs or, pardon me, drugs and treatments that are not available in the country, of course, it'll be of no benefit to you. But if I remember correctly, Special Access has a compassionate component. Give that a look. Let me know how it works out and keep me in the loop here. We're going to follow up on your behalf with the government to say, you know, for starters, how come there is an upfront information about exactly what you're going to get here for a course of treatment, the length of time you'll be receiving the treatment, how we measure success, all those types of things. Information is power. So give Special Access a a Google, uh, Government Canada. Let me know if there's anything inside that and stay in touch. Okay, perfect. Thank you so much, Patty. My pleasure, Crystal. Dave wants me to put uh, put you on hold. He has a question for you. Okay, let's do that. Crystal, you're on hold. You'll speak with Dave. Let's take our final break of the morning. Don't go away. Welcome back to the program. Okay, let's go. Line number seven. Say good morning to the Liberal member elected in. Serving the folks of Cornerbrook. That's Jerry Byrne. Good morning, Minister Byrne. You're on the air. So much, Patty, for having me on. And let you finish off to today's show. Great show it is. Appreciate your time. What's on your mind? Listen, I just wanted to do a follow-up. <clears throat> There's been um, a lot of interest, of course, in our Ukrainian resettlements and uh, a lot of uh, stories to be told. But I think uh, the significant, significant majority of them are incredibly positive stories. We have 3,100 Ukrainians now living in Newfoundland, Labrador, and I can report to you that 2,600 of the 3,100 are in market community driven uh, market community housing in our province. And uh, with the end of the month, with new leases ready to be uh, turned over on September 1st, it looks like with another 100 will be going out into, um, into market housing in communities throughout all of Newfoundland and Labrador. So it's a, it's a, listen, it's a, it's, you know, this is never easy. These are people who came to our country with two suitcases, but we are doing our absolute very best to help them, and they're doing their absolute very best to help us in the process. And to uh, confirm once more, because I've asked you this in the past, but when you're going out into private market housing, does that not come with any support financially from the government for housing? There is a move out, a support in the one-time sunset support. When you move from temporary housing into market housing, your, your moving costs, some of your furniture, maybe your dishes, some money is provided for that purpose. If you move to Labrador, you can get up to $6,000. And if you move on the island, uh, it may be as low as uh, $2,000. But there is support there. But there is no there is no support for rental supplements or anything like that, Patty. Okay. I think there's also a mention on my subject line here that you want to talk about carbon tax before we run out of time. Yeah. So this is a transition. I'm meeting with the new Minister of Immigration uh, very shortly this week. Uh, we've got a great relationship there. Housing, there's a new Minister of Housing, the former Minister of Immigration. We're going to start with that. But one of the portfolios that has not changed is the environment portfolio, the federal environment portfolio. And uh, i got to tell you, this is the end of the summer. We're moving into the fall. And uh, what we have done as a government, what we continue to do as a government, to try to move the federal government away from the imposition of their carbon taxes as they currently have done. These are times that uh, are really important. We've got the fall coming in, Patty, and I could tell you, I meet with fishermen. I'm a former fisheries minister. We had exemptions. Our provincial government, the Fury government, had exemptions on uh, fuel purchased by fishermen, by farmers, 
by loggers, by those in the uh, mining industry. Those are now this, the current administration and the current minister, a federal minister, has taken those away. And uh, we are not happy about it. And we are one of very few provinces that have tried to offset some of those costs by even lowering our own fuel costs, our own fuel taxes. But we had very few provinces have done that, except for us. And so we are, I just wanted to say to the fishermen, to the loggers, and to the farmers that I've been meeting with, uh, we will not stand down on this with the federal government whatsoever. We will not stand down on this with the federal government. And one of the reasons probably why we have two federal ministers in Newfoundland and Labrador is that the federal government doesn't seem to be prepared to stand down on it. Uh, but we will continue this fight. And we are against, we are against the federal carbon taxes as, the, as they have been imposed. We're going to find out in short order when the winter comes around exactly what this is going to mean. It's one thing to have a brief hiatus from needing to turn on the heat in the house. But that's where the problem's going to lie. I mean, it's not vastly different in the world in gasoline and diesel. And yes, we need exemptions in the agricultural world because that, once again, those costs could pass on to me when I go to the grocery store. But this winter is going to be an issue because the numbers of people struggling to heat their home last year, that has, is going to triple, quadruple, be tenfold, whatever the real number is, because that's a tax we have not paid. I personally uh, don't think uh, GST belongs on necessities of life, like heating your home. We don't have a choice. We don't apply it to food because we have to eat. I don't think we should apply it to heating your home either, to be honest. Uh, you've had the final word. I'll give you uh, 30 seconds before we have to say goodbye. Just that you can count on us, uh, Patty, to, to keep this fight going. There needs to be a review. The prices of fuel have gone up through market-driven principles. That is supposed to curb consumption. It's time for the federal government to stand back, and the provincial government in Newfoundland and Labrador will stand firm on this. It's time for them to assess what they've done and the impact on the economy and the people and the communities of not only Newfoundland and Labrador, but the entire country. But we are all about Newfoundland and Labrador. Appreciate the time. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Uh, we are indeed out of time, but we'll pick up this conversation. And look, there's no question that there's plenty of newcomers, including Ukrainians, who are still struggling mightily, as well as everybody else out there when we're talking about housing in particular. We just need a coherent, cogent strategy there's been a lot of piecemeal stuff. Social housing used to be a, a federal focus. That's gone by the wayside. How that gets backfilled. And even if we talk about some of the ideas coming from other political parties, we can talk about that in the morning. Well, we will indeed pick up this conversation again tomorrow morning right here on VOCM and Big Land FM's Open Line. On behalf of the producer, David Williams, I'm your host, Patty Daly. Have yourself a safe, fun, happy day. We'll talk in the morning. Bye-bye.